0: Ah, we're live. All right, Jeff. Thank you very much, man. Appreciate you coming on here It was uh, very cool talking to you in Brazil and uh, even though it was a very short conversation I learned a lot and I got very fired up about this podcast Awesome, man. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you and thank you for all the stuff you've done um, If for folks who don't know you're the guy who essentially took down Lance Armstrong or at least made the the case or Solidify I mean, how would you describe it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was involved in the investigation. Um, you know, it was a case run by the Department of Justice out of Los Angeles. I was one of the case agents on it, so I was associated with it. That's one of the things that's creepy about it, is that the government was going
0: after bike riders. It's like, wouldn't you think that they've got some really important shit to do? Like, I think that bothered a lot of people about the baseball thing with Barry Bonds and with Mark McGuire and all that Sammy Sosa stuff. It's like, why is that the fucking Congress involved? And it seems...
1: Yeah, you know, uh, you know, on one hand, these were laws that, you know, the agencies I was with was were tasked to investigate. Uh, on the other hand, in terms of importance, um, you know, I was on a personal level. I looked at the message that was being sent to the youth, not only of this country, but of the world, and that it, it became um, a fact that in, you know, the mid to late 90s, steroid use was so pervasive um, in sports that, you know, kids are smart these days they're you know on the internet they know what's going on that it you really did see it trickling down to kids you know in high school and at some point if you wanted to take that sport far enough you ultimately had to make that decision hey do I want to keep going and if I do I'm gonna have to make a decision whether or not you know I'm gonna use these things so um, I think you know the I, I think about the number of conversations that probably happened around dinner table between parents and kids because of these cases got to be in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And that alone right there, you know, I think would justify the resources that were spent. Defendants in the in those cases always, I, I, it was always overblown in terms of the, res, the resources that the government did spend doing it. You know, you heard often the Barry Bonds case was 50, 55 million dollar case. It really wasn't. Um, you know, in that case involved not steroid use, but lying in front of a grand jury. So it transcended spero- steroid use. It was about lying and telling the truth and misusing the justice system. I've had agents all across the country on non-steroid related cases come up to me and say, hey, thanks thanks for that case, because we can use that as a, as an example when we go out and interview witnesses or witnesses come before a grand jury that, look, you need to tell the truth, and if you don't, look what can happen. You know, if The government went after Barry Bonds or certainly will go after you. And when that truth starts being told like that, the our legal and justice system starts working. When it doesn't, it breaks down. So it wasn't $55 million?
0: How much was actually spent around? You know, it's funny.
1: 49 uh, Yeah. 49 50 <laughs> No, not even close. Uh, some media outlet uh, did a freedom of information request with the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco who prosecuted the case. So this was after the case was done. So they put... The dollar figures together are what the trial costs, not, not not necessarily, you know, the entire investigation, but the trial itself, I think it was less than $100,000. And the comment was, geez, this is the, the most cost-efficient, high-profile trial that's probably ever happened. Um, but that's not a full account of all the money that was spent trying to bring him down. It's not. But again, and again, this wasn't trying to bring anybody down. This was a situation where he went before a grand jury. Uh didn't tell the truth. Uh, His grand jury transcript, ironically enough, was leaked by the Balco, one of the Balco attorneys, defense attorneys. And so the public all of a sudden got to read exactly what he said in there. Um, It was obvious that he at least was obstructing, if not outright, not telling the truth. Um, And so I think the Justice Department was faced with, what do we do now? What kind of message are we sending if we don't, prosecute this guy it sends a message that you know far transcends steroid use in sports there's thousands of witnesses every day that appear before grand juries so it was almost a necessity to have to do it. It
0: wasn't about steroids, but it was about steroids because the only reason why he was there was questioning him about steroids. So it essentially was. And that's how a lot of people feel like when it comes to like organized crime, like didn't they bust Al Capone on tax evasion? Like that's how a lot of people get caught. They get caught lying while they're in the middle of committing a crime, but it's really about the original crime, wasn't it?
1: Well, they did. I mean, that's why he was brought in there, but, you know, when he was brought in, it was made very clear that look, you you're not tell prosecuting the truth. you for using steroids. He was given immunity, actually, showing that as long as you tell the truth, you're not a target in this thing. You're just a witness. So tell the truth.
0: But he was never convicted for using steroids, right? To this, like, And wasn't he off the hook even as far as the, the investigation goes? Like, He never did any time. and Was he even penalized? Like, how was he penalized other than having to go through trials and spend a lot of money?
1: Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, after he was convicted in the jury trial, uh, the judge sentenced him to house arrest. Um, but, but I he, tell you, I bet
0: he's got a sweet house. <laughs> it's not really that bad. Can you even watch TV when you're in the house arrest? I think you can. Yeah. That seems a little ridiculous. I like being at home.
1: <laughs> but I tell you, even in a situation like that, I tell people all the time, man, being under investigation to begin with, going through a, a public trial with, you know, potentially embarrassing things about you. Man, that's rough. I wouldn't. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, notwithstanding what the ultimate you know sentence was. But it's the most
0: embarrassing thing was that he did what everybody knew he did, which was take steroids to get bigger. I mean, that
1: was the most embarrassing thing about it all, right? It wasn't anything else. Oh, I mean, personal. there was more things. It was you know, ex girlfriends that were called it. That you know, went on the stand. I saw him and, shoot
0: it. I saw him shoot it right in his ass. He got bigger right in front of my eyes.
1: Uh, the, the 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 thing that people have a problem
0: with is that there's le- legit problems in the world and they're chasing people for hitting a ball with a stick better you know like like baseball's boring as shit and the best part about baseball is when they hit home runs and people are saying well the, finally these guys are doing something that makes them hit more home runs and it turns out that this something involves science and chemicals and we don't like it so we're going to come down on these people and we're going to spend a lot of taxpayers money and we're going to bring these people before congress and
1: joe biden's going to get all goofy about it that's how a lot of people felt about it. Well, I think anytime time you, you could spend resources on something that's going to directly affect the youth of society and sending them a message about what is right and what is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having grown up in a, in a sporting household myself, uh, three daughters, which, you know, played sports growing up, and I look at kind of what I went through and, and what my daughters have gone through and the life's lessons that you learn in sports that transcend sports I mean, mm-hmm. you learn how to work under pressure how to work you know as a team how to individually succeed there's so many great lessons to be learned the health aspects of you know being healthy and working out all of a sudden you introduce into that equation number one breaking the breaking the rules and so there's you know the ethics to look at surrounding it and number two you know ultimately there can be risk and health consequences was using these things, especially if you're young doing that. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, going back to the message, I think that it sent to our kids and to parents with where I think society was going back then with the pervasive use of, of drugs in sports, I think was a positive one it was going to benefit people positively. And I, th- I think it did. It did have an impact. The landscape has changed in the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I
0: think you're definitely right about that. And that's that's the most compelling aspect of it as far as like the argument for chasing it down is if kids are growing up and the you know, kid says, hey, I want to I be a professional baseball player, how many people are going to tell that kid, look, you've got to take steroids? If you want to get into a good college, if you want to get a, you know, a bunch of recruiters looking at you, you've got to start making some noise right now. And the way to do it is this stuff right here. Okay. Squirt the- that stuff in there.
1: The amount of conversations I had with young athletes, baseball players, definitely cyclists, where they talked about that moment that all their life growing up, you know, they aspired to be a professional, and then they got to a certain point in baseball, it was, you know, minor league, maybe Triple A, In cycling, it was hey, about to get signed on to a pro team going over to Europe and realizing oh shit, to go any further, I'm seeing what's going on around me here, I'm going to have to make that decision. I have had I, I can't even count the number of athletes I've had sitting across the table from me recounting those days when those decisions were made that were bawling like little babies talking about that. And I think a lot of it was guilt in terms of the decision that they ultimately did make, but just the pressure of, of coming to that moment, either giving up your lifelong dream or, hey, kid, if you want to go further, this is what you got to do. And in some instances, you know, Kind of rebuffing that and not doing it and then after you're realizing shit I really do need to do this or I can't go any further have many many of those stories told to me
0: Yeah, it is really crazy that sports like professional cycling, especially uh, we, we talked about this when I Saw you in Brazil that I had a buddy that was a professional cycler for a while And he told me this long before the Lance Armstrong stuff went down before he got caught He said they are all doing it. He said you can't compete at that high level He said not only that but the doctor that he talked to said you could make an argument That it's actually more dangerous to compete in that sport without the drugs And then I said well, what kind of a fucking sport is this man? Like this is crazy Then after you and I had this conversation I started looking into the Tour de France times. We, We spoke about this briefly in Brazil that the guy who was winning the Tour de France, I don't even know what his name is, he was breaking records that were set by guys that were on drugs. And we were trying to figure out how the fuck that's possible.
1: Yeah, it's a bit suspicious. A bit.
0: I mean, these are hyperhuman levels of performance. And they're, you know, he's beating guys that we know were the elite of the elite that were also on steroids, were also on EPO.
1: Yeah, the the cycling. I, I think we talked about this in terms of level of sophistication versus all the sports that I saw where drug use was prevalent was by far at the top, where you know they were investing in machines to bring along with them as they were competing and traveling to to test their blood every night to make sure that their levels were within reason and wouldn't pop on a on a drug test or a biological you know passport test.
0: The um, biological passport, if I'm not mistaken, what that means is like say if we test you and we get your levels that we can test you on a regular basis and you have to stay within a consistent range. Is that the idea?
1: Yeah, that's pretty much it, and it's, it's something we're using in our UFC program. So, you know, the more tests you have, the better you're able to read it. But over a, a longitudinal study. Of your blood and urine markers, Uh, science and studies have shown you're going to have normal variances. You know, each human being will have a normal variance.
0: How does that factor in with overtraining? And a lot of these athletes are overtrained, and it's it's a a consistent. Uh, aspect of uh, MMA camps is that guys are just really breaking themselves down, doing two and three a days, wrestling, strength and conditioning, kickboxing. It's just, you know, sometimes you you see these guys' testosterone levels, they come in, they're just wrecked, and they're mid-camp.
1: Yeah, and that's definitely, you know, I'm not a scientist, but in talking to scientists who read these, they take that into consideration. I think the overtraining, you would tend to see some of those variances on the lower side, and, and that may be normal, but when They're reading these, you know, these biological passports and you see some way on the lower side. And then all of a sudden you see way one on the higher side. Then, you know, it begins to, to raise questions about what's going on. Now, a lot of times a biological passport will just lead to more intelligent testing or targeted testing may not necessarily be, hey, this person's definitely using. But based on these variances, something may be suspiciously going on here. Let's test this this guy or girl. You know more hone in on Suspicions like that and really the the most accurate tests are blood tests. Is that the case blood are the most accurate correct?
0: There you were there's the other thing you were telling me about when we were in Brazil that I thought was fascinating was that they're There there's a new type of testosterone that they're making testosterone from yams, right? Correct and that now they're doing it through animals.
1: Yeah, they are Um, So, you know, one of the most accurate tests now to use is called the carbon isotope ratio test. And what that's able to do is differentiate between natural testosterone, which all men and women have in their body, and foreign testosterone because there's a different carbon atom in that testosterone because it's made from a plant instead of an animal. Um, There's now, you know, at least in research supply companies, I don't think it's approved for use. but. There's animal-based testosterone floating around, which has the potential to possibly defeat a carbon isotope ratio test because it has the same carbon atom as natural testosterone does. Is there any hesitation in talking about these things
0: because you worry that you might educate cheaters?
1: No, I don't think so. I think, you know, I've always found that, you know, your credibility rises when you're forthright about what's going on. Um, And because on the other side of things, um, you know, the science is... You know, looking at these things and always coming up with new tests. I think something that's, in fact, I just read it today, um, and we do this in our program as well, is uh, there was in cycling, they will freeze samples, both urine and blood, and keep them for years at a time. And cycling just recently went back and retested some of the frozen urine and blood from a few years ago uh, for a new drug, which they had just developed a test for and they were able to catch a guy from a couple of years ago that had used it, we're going to do that in UFC as well. So even if you know, there's a new drug out there that you know scientists, chemists are saying there's no test for, potentially a couple of years down the line when there is a test for it, we'd have the ability to go back and test that. Now maybe that athlete's no longer with the UFC or no longer competing at all anymore, but you know, there's still reputation and, and legacy at stake.
0: Wow, that's crazy! So the UFC is going to have like a giant meat locker filled with old blood and pee.
1: Yeah, the, to... the laboratories will have that. Yeah. <laughs> wow,
0: that's uh, that's fascinating stuff. But doesn't that, well, there's a chain of evidence issue with that, isn't there? Which is sitting around in some sort of a lab somewhere. What well, is? Mean,
1: yeah, there'll be secure, you know, mm-hmm. freezers where there is a chain of custody that goes along with each sample. So outside that freezer will be guards. The paperwork. No, the they're very. WADA laboratories are very secure laboratories. Yeah. I've tried to get in them before. They're tough. You're signing off your life to get in one of those things. But um, no, so there's the chain of custody will be good, you know, going on indefinitely on those things.
0: So, so far as you know, this hasn't been approved. Where people haven't used this animal-based testosterone yet? Well, I believe it's being used now. You believe it is? No. Yeah. Um, there's also like, wasn't it Alex Rodriguez? Is that who it was that was using a slow or, or a quick-release testosterone? Uh, it, was, it gets out of your system very quickly. Yeah. A short lifespan, a short half-life. Yeah. What was the deal with that stuff?
1: It's just fast-acting, fast-clearing testosterone. And I think, you know, the landscape on how drugs are used has changed over the last several years as tests, you know, got more accurate. And so the idea is you could take this. I think he was taking like gummies or lozenges, Mm -hmm. you know, take it at night. And by morning time, you know, the testosterone could be clear your system. So you take it while you're sleeping to help you recover.
0: That's the idea behind it?
1: Yeah, I think you see more along the lines of it's called microdosing. So small amounts where, um, you know, again, talking more of recovery versus building up. Massive muscles, which you saw maybe in the, the mid to late 90s. You saw these cartoonish figures out, at least on a baseball field. I think now it's evolved a little bit more where there's less amounts using, more for recovery benefits.
0: Now, a guy like Jose Cansego, how much damage did he do when that guy, or positive, you know, depending on how you're looking at it, when that guy came out with that book and explained what he did and what everybody he knew did? How, how illuminating was that to guys like you?
1: Well, I mean, it, you talked before about congressional hearings. I think his, you know, his book came out at a time when, you know, the BALCO case was kind of in the media, and it probably caused those congressional hearings where Congress called baseball to the table and Bud Selig. And you look now, ten years later, and baseball completely done a 180. They they lead sports in terms of you know anti doping program. Professional sports here, well, before our program came along. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, their testing program is, is pretty good. And compared to 10 years ago, night and day, do the athletes look different? I don't follow baseball, but are they smaller guys now? I think so. I mean, I don't think you see, you know, the Mark McGuire's or the Jose Canseco's are as, as prevalent as you did back then. Definitely look at the statistics. I mean, those, those don't lie. You're not seeing. 50, 60 70 home runs anymore you know see
0: I'm torn I'm torn on that because I think baseball sucks and it's the only th- cool thing about it is when a guy whacks a ball and sends it flying I totally agree with you on the message that it sends to young people I think there's a difference between that though and fighting and the difference between that and fighting clearly in my eyes Is that when you are taking something and you're fighting you can do more damage to an opponent? And you kind of force your opponent to also do something if he wants to be on a level playing field if we had a sport where it was just anything goes like the pride days now, I, obviously, we're, a lot of it is speculation, and anecdotal evidence, and, and just people, witness accounts from people that were there, like Ensign Inouye, who's been on my podcast before and talked about the Pride contracts, which openly stated, we will not test you for steroids. That was in the contract. And my own experiences with friends who went over there, they were, they were telling them, like, you should take steroids. Like uh, I have a buddy that would normally fight at 170 pounds, could even get down to 155. They were telling him to do steroids and get up to 185. And he was like, "What?" Like he, he you know, he couldn't believe it. Like he came back from Japan going, "Dude, they told me to do steroids." And that was the wild west of the performance enhancing era, where it, it seemed like a giant percentage of the people were on something. The, the difference being that when you're on something, if you're on EPO and testosterone and human growth hormone and all this thing, and you're inside of a, a ring or a cage. You can do more damage to your opponent You can possibly land strikes that you would not be able to land and some of those strikes may or may not have a Permanent effect on your opponent. So in a lot of people's eyes It's a much more dire and serious consequence than Baseball where you're just hitting a ball with a stick So in a lot of people's eyes and in my eyes I think it's amazing that the UFC has taken this chance and and done what they're doing because they really didn't have to do this what they did is you know bring a guy like you aboard you know i i've talked to a lot of trainers and they they, they raised their eyebrows and shook their heads like oh shit's going to be different now because they realized that this is this is a, a real big commitment to try to clean up mma and uh, a commitment that, quite honestly, they really didn't have to do. They could have stuck with the Nevada State Athletic Commission's protocol, the urine tests after fights, the occasional, you know, blood test if they wanted to do random tests on people they were suspicious of. But in a lot of people's eyes, those tests were more of an intelligence test than they were of, you know, a, a real, honest to goodness anti-doping effort.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with everything you just said. Um, I'm often asked, "Hey, do you think?" steroid use in MMA or the UFC is way off the chart compared to other sports, and my answer is I don't know yet. I mean, I've seen very pervasive use in other sports, so I don't think it's unique to MMA or UFC. What is unique is what you just talked about, the importance of it, and that this isn't hitting a ball over the fence with a stick. This is two human beings getting into an octagon and trying to get the other to submit by inflicting pain and hurting them. And when you give someone you know an unfair and, and artificially enhanced advantage over that other person uh, man in terms of it just not being right uh it's at a whole new level um and yeah i mean dana and lorenzo from the minute you know i had conversations with them before coming over here have jumped fully on board to this and i think everybody realizes that you know from a business standpoint especially short term this This could hurt the UFC, but, you know, in terms of long-term and short-term health and safety of their fighters, which I'm telling you, these guys are on board with. They care about their athletes. Um, I mean, this speaks volumes of what they're doing.
0: It's a big turnaround also from just a few years ago where testosterone replacement therapy was sanctioned by the Nevada State Athletic Commission. That was a big issue that you were getting. I mean, there's no need to mention names, but I know a guy who was in his 20s. Who was on TRT it's like what the fuck if you're on testosterone replacement and you're in your 20s and you're competing in MMA You shouldn't be competing in MMA. You've got a real problem if you're at such a low level of testosterone um, One of the things that uh, when I was Trying to sort it out and make sense of it all one of the things that I found most disturbing was my conversations with my friend Dr.. Mark Gordon who's uh, famous for his work with traumatic brain injury a lot of soldiers that have come back from getting blown up by IEDs and the the impact that it has on the pituitary gland and how a lot of these guys have very low testosterone Because of the impacts that they've taken and he's pretty adamant about it He's like if you have to take testosterone because you've been getting hit in the head too much The the answer is not take testosterone the answer is don't get hit in the head anymore like you you shouldn't be Like putting a patch on that and then getting right back into the octagon if you are forced to take testosterone Because of the head injuries you shouldn't be competing anymore
1: Yeah, I agree and I really I can't believe how naive People were just a few years back to to allow that happen. It's just it's amazing. How did it happen? I think just, you know, not being educated, uh, just just not around it enough. They didn't look into, you know, things as hard as they should have. That's my guess. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't know either. Um, it was never approved by the Olympics, right? The Olympic Committee
1: never approved it, did they? Did they? Uh, you know, I, th- I think in the history of therapeutic use exemptions it's on like the Olympic one level, I think there's maybe one. And I think it was literally... You know, someone involved, I'm not sure, but say sailing that lost their testicles to testicular cancer and Mm -hmm. almost got to that level versus someone who, you know, urine tests would show low testosterone on, you know, one or two occasions, which my understanding was what was being required for TRT back in the day. Which not only that
0: is easy to manipulate. It's uh, all they have to do is just be tired. Like literally all they have to do is like work out really hard, do a crazy workout, stay up all night piss on in a bottle in the morning, and you are like, this poor guy's got the testosterone of a 90-year-old man. But meanwhile, they're manipulating it. And also, it's a sign of steroid abuse. Because if you have taken steroids, you've wrecked your endocrine system, and then you go in there and you take these tests, and it shows that your endocrine system is wrecked. You're like, wow, you need some steroids to fix that. It's crazy that that was... That was the protocol, and this was uh, just a few years ago. We were dealing with several athletes that were competing in the highest levels of MMA, and they were juiced to the tits.
1: Yeah, and it's a good thing we're talking about being in the past because that you know it's not happening going forward. Our program does have a therapeutic use exemption uh, possibility for athletes, so athletes can apply for certain medicines that maybe are banned, that an independent group that USAID puts together of physicians and scientists will look at to determine if there really isn't a medical need like what now, would that be testosterone replacement therapy will not be uh, therapy will not be one of those like a- um, with Adderall? I'll, give, I'll give you a perfect Adderall's example so someone recently um, one of our fighters has some type of disease where they need medicine administered via an IV every month and IV uh. is we'll probably get to talking about here is a prohibited method under our system, so they would apply for a TUE saying, look, I'm using this IV because I need this drug for this disease I have, so, you know, give me approval to use it, Hmm. and this board will look at it and determine whether or not that's needed.
0: This is one athlete? Yeah. And this athlete needs it once a month? Yep. So when you do that, would you um, test them when they're not doing that drug, whatever they need, and then make sure that they haven't been using an IV bag then?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a difficult one, how USADA is going to do it. Uh, I think they would go along with their normal testing protocol on that individual and whether or not it was, you know, hit that individual when they were using an IV or not. If evidence of an IV usage did come up, then they would go back and, and this could apply to, to any drug that is granted for a therapeutic use exemption. They then go back and look at that file for that athlete and say, hey, Looks like that athletes use an IV uh, he was you know approved to use one under a therapeutic use exemption are you at
0: liberty to say what the drug is that they have to take I don't remember what it was okay um, now what is the what's the reason why they can't use an IV is it to mask the possible performance enhancing drugs
1: that's that's the primary reason and I saw this you know we talked a little bit ago about the cycling community I saw it you know up front and center in cycling and that they were using ivs of saline solution to manipulate their biological passports so to manipulate their you know blood level readings which were being used to determine if they were blood doping Um, it could also be used to to flush a system it it dilutes blood and urine so that you know natural steroid steroid profiles are very hard to read after you've taken you know an iv bag Uh, so that's the primary reason Um, i think wada also prohibits them for some health reasons um, those are many. I mean, that's, we could talk, I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about it here, but those are on many different levels, the health reasons. I think primarily, uh, you know, when an IV is administered, um, and I've talked to, to many athletes that have had this happen, especially close to a competition, uh, there's a possibility of, of blowing out a vein or having clotting after, you know, the IV is taken out. If the idea is to rehydrate, it's much safer to do it orally. There could be some issues with with IV administration and edema, so swelling. So cells will not be able to get rid of fluid because they've got too much too quick. Um,
0: I have heard of that. I have heard of that being an issue with uh, IV replacement, and I think that was an issue with at least one UFC fighter. I'm trying to remember the story, but I I, God, I wish I could pit a name to the story. But I know someone did have an issue with legal use of it back when it was approved, where they got edema. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I I, uh, I don't know of any current fighters. I've talked to a few retired fighters who have told me about problems that they had with that. Um, now, now um,
0: sorry to interrupt, but the the concern that a lot of people have is that a lot of these guys are cutting a tremendous amount of weight, and you know, some of them more than twenty pounds. They cut that. The day of the weigh-ins they weigh in looking like a skeleton and then 24 hours later they're supposed to engage in the most ferocious form of unarmed combat we know of what what these guys normally would do is rehydrate with an iv they would go and they would have several bags of liquid put into their body and then they would just blow up like a balloon come back in 24 hours later and you'd see them the next day they didn't even look like the same person they look so much bigger I mean some guys it was just freakish to see you would see them rehydrated and you'd be like whoa like what how did this guy do this they can't do that anymore now they have to drink the water and what are the issues with drinking the water and how hard is it going to be for these extreme weight cutting guys to rehydrate
1: yeah I mean there there's many issues first off you know Studies show that orally rehydrating is better for you if Stud- you're if you're mildly re, uh, dehydrated. What, what studies are they done by Gatorade? <laughs> Who does these studies? Uh, yeah, uh, American. Is uh, it real? Uh, no, they're real. American uh, Trainers Association uh, Sports Medicine Journal. There's many of them out there. Um, there's there's two things that they that they show consistently. Um, well, number one, it's obviously safer to put something through your mouth than you know, put it in the needle in your vein. Uh, number two, I thought was interesting is your perceived rate of exertion. So how hard you feel you're working after rehydrating orally is less than if you rehydrate via IV. So, you know, the message we're trying to get out is, look, if you, if re, you rehydrate orally properly, UFC fighters, that next day, you're going to feel a whole lot better really? when you're exerting yourself. Yeah, multiple studies have showed that. Um, now, that's mild dehydration. Extreme dehydration, the studies do show that IVs are necessary. You probably should go to a hospital and get one if you're extremely dehydrated, that oral rehydration is not going to do it for you. And in this, you know, in WADA's prohibited method policy, There is an exception to IV use, where if you are administered to a hospital setting and given an IV, it's okay. You don't need a therapeutic use exemption. Under our policy, you don't need to notify USADA. The problem or the catch-22 there is I think you need to notify the commission where you're fighting that you were administered to a hospital the day before your fight. And And they probably wouldn't let you fight. They're probably not going to let you fight. Wow. So what it all comes down to, Joe, is that our... Guys and girls need to get smarter about those weight cuts and should not be excessively dehydrating themselves the day before. Let me tell you one more thing. These studies are in their infancy. I'm talking to a lot of different scientists and and physicians about this, but right now, rehydration studies are showing that in 24 hours, if you're dehydrated seriously you're likely not gonna fully rehydrate, whether it be orally or IV, in 24 hours. It's probably gonna take more like 48 hours. And the last thing to fully rehydrate is gonna be the blood-brain barrier. So that fluid around the head, the brain that's protecting it from hard shots, there's some science out there that shows that may take 72 hours to fully recover. Wow. So, I mean, really throw You know the IV thing out the window even with IV rehydration you're still putting yourself in serious danger 24 hours later if you're severely dehydrated
0: well let's talk about this because your your job is the VP of uh, what is it performance and what is the uh, Health the health and performance what about is there a way to stop weight cutting I mean look ideally what we should do is match people up that are the same size And have them compete against other elite athletes that are the same size. Forget about all the weight-cutting nonsense. Let's just, what do you weigh? You weigh 180? That's what you weigh when you're at your optimum. You should be fighting guys that are also 180. Let's find out who the best 180-pound person is. There's a real problem in the UFC with weight classes. There, there's a giant jump in between them. There's 185, and then there's 205. Mm-hmm. If you stand a 185-pound man next to a 205-pound man, you're dealing with 20 16-ounce T-bones mm-hmm. that's pushing that 205-pounder. Just think about the amount of mass and power that you can generate with the amount of weight they have, that extra 20 pounds, that's significant. The amount of more power that they could possibly generate, the amount of, you know, just the ability to pick you up when they maybe couldn't if they were just 20 pounds less. The ability to push out of a lock, to, to break out of a submission, to, to break out of a clinch, that's significant. And when you have these big, giant gaps, it's encouraging people to make these extreme weight cuts because they want to be the big guy in the division.
1: I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you with all of that. Uh, Hopefully, the IV ban and, you know, kind of those statistics I was quoting earlier in those studies will have an effect on things and and cause, you know, our athletes, um, trainers, support to take a look at that. Uh, I can give you examples of NCAA wrestling in the late 90s had an issue with a bad issue with weight cutting and lost three wrestlers in one year to saunas, plastic suits. And when you say lost, they died. They died, yeah. Uh, NCAA went to the extreme and banned most weight cutting practices. They banned plastic suits, saunas, things like that. Um, They adapted and became much more safer. The IV ban went into effect after WADA passed, I think, 2012, and that affected severely Olympic boxing and Olympic wrestling. We're doing weight cuts you know similar to what MMA's experienced now but they
0: those sports have much smaller weight classes
1: true i think they do i think they much have every smaller. 10 pounds right yeah um, well i mean but there was i think initially kind of similar to what we're talking about here a lot of a lot of pushback from the athletes about you know this isn't fair this isn't right this is going to be unsafe they adapted pretty quickly and it's become a thing of the past here so i think you know in in terms of what we're going and where we're going i'm constantly just trying to be a a sponge and absorb you know studies science medicine pass it along to our fighters pass it along internally with ufc um and you know let's see where it goes As, as i said earlier you know my position and i think the position of the leadership is always with the health and safety of our fighters you know at the forefront um so it'll be an issue that you know personally i'll definitely always be looking at
0: do you, have you had the conversation with them whether or not there will be additional weight classes
1: I haven't talked about that specifically but you know have talked about what this issue of the IV ban is going to mean and some of the statistics and, and stories that we're hearing about weight cutting I'm definitely sharing that with with everybody
0: that I think that's hugely important but there has to be some sort of an option for these people and for someone who's like say Chris Weidman Weidman's a big guy I mean, he's very, to the fact that he makes 185 is shocking enough. I saw him when he cut weight on a short notice to make 185 for uh, Damian Maya, And he looked like death. I mean, he was on death's door when he weighed in. And then the next day he went out and won just by sheer toughness and will and skill and just the fact that he's that kind of guy. But that's, that's because he cut a lot of weight. I mean, that's how he made that weight, and then, and then he fought the next day, and he was definitely depleted. You could see in his performance. I mean, he won a, a decision against Maya, but he looked sluggish, and he just pushed through just through sheer toughness. A guy like him was the champ at 185. If, if all of a sudden weight cutting starts getting banned, I mean, he's walking around, I, I'd have to guess, at least 20 pounds heavier than that, at least. What does a guy like that do? He's the champion. If he can't make the 185 weight class anymore, does so he just move up to 205?
1: Yeah, that's that's an interesting, tough question. And I think, you know, these these are the toughest guys and girls on the planet and just able to put themselves through unhuman uh, pain and suffering, both in the ring and, I think, through the weight cutting. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that right now other than, you know, educate and share as much information i'm not a big believer in throwing a million rules at people i think you take things one step at a time let's see what this iv band does let's see kind of what the education that we're providing our athletes does and you know always reevaluate it month to month year to year i just think
0: that there should be some sort of an option for these guys I mean, the the idea that they have a 20-pound weight jump between 185 and 205, and then there's a big one is 205 to 265. I mean, that is fucking crazy. There's a lot of guys that are small heavyweights or just dehydrated light heavyweights, and they have to figure out what to do about something like that. I really think the UFC needs many more weight classes, and they've resisted that. They think it waters the sport down like it does with boxing, but I think it creates more champions, and more champions creates the possibility of more champion versus champion fights. I just think that these, these gaps, if you're going to institute this no IV thing and you're going to change the whole system of weight cutting, you've got to give these people some options.
1: Yeah, you know, we'll see where it goes. It's not, you know, other than IVs being used to defeat drug tests, which is in my past experience, it's a new issue for me that, you know, I'm learning on a day-to-day basis. So.
0: Uh, now, what about athletes in camp? Are they allowed to use an IV in camp? Like, what if they have a particularly brutal day in the hot sun, they go run up hills, and they come back, and their, their doctor says, listen, man, you're really fucking dehydrated. We would like to get an IV bag in you. Can they call you guys up and say, hey, we have an athlete that uh, he just did a two a day and, you know, did hill sprints and we would really like to get this kid an IV?
1: Again, in a a hospital administration setting, they can do it. Don't even need to notify us. Um, That may be an instance where they would want to do it because then they wouldn't have to tell, you know, the commission um, if there was, you know, a fight coming up soon.
0: Wouldn't that be something they could potentially manipulate?
1: It could, but you know they can manipulate. Yeah, but uh, their blood levels, absolutely. But you know, hey, it's a balancing act. If somebody is really, truly that dehydrated and needs one, you know, even if it can be used to manipulate a blood blood test, if it's for their health and safety because they're so severely dehydrated, then you know the policy's made to so as not to stop that.
0: Mm. Now, uh, Andy Foster, who's the head of the California State Athletic Commission, has done a fantastic job here in California. I'm a big fan of this guy, and he's just aggressively going after uh, drug doping and tested a lot of people on the UFC card here. I believe he tested everyone, um, and he, he just uh, Schlemanko who got popped. I think they gave him a three-year Three years, ban. Yep. But that's that's extreme. I mean, that is, that is sending a big, big message. Do you think that that's the kind of stuff that has to be done, like it has to be so extreme that a few, you have to have a few sacrificial lambs where the rest of the athletes have to go, look, this is my fucking career. You know, if you want to really compete, this is the way you ha- you're going to have to do it. You, you can't take any chances because we're not talking about nine months anymore, which is not that bad for a fighter because the reality is they're not going to fight more than once every six months anyway. So they get, you know, at, at an elite level, it's very rare that a guy like, say, a Vitor Belfort fights more than once every six months. At the most, you might fight three times a year, right? So a guy takes a few extra months off. Not that big a deal. Three years, it's kind of the end of your career.
1: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. There needs to be the deterrent effect up front, and that's you know one of the reasons I think our policy is so strong. It's our policy first time is two, but if there's aggravating circumstances, and that would be quantified as, say, somebody was found to take a steroid and did an IV bag just before the test. And we found out about that. That could be an aggravating circumstance, a possibility of four years, which you know, as we get out and educate our fighters, I, I you know, I, I talk about those terms and I ask who thinks two, definitely four, is a career ender? Most of them heads bobbing up and down. I mean, unless you're on the absolute top of the UFC, you know, food chain four years, you're Four years is you're done. Long past.
0: I mean, if you get popped at thirty four, then you come back, you're thirty eight. That's crazy. Yeah. It's not gonna happen. It's just not I mean if it does happen you'll be severely diminished and the likelihood of you being I mean you're gonna be off the sauce now, too Like you were probably doing something so your system has to recover you, you know You're then there's also the mental aspect for a lot of these guys. There's a lot of these fighters that were fighting enhanced for most of their career and They have this mental advantage of fighting enhanced, where they know they're juiced up and it gives them all this confidence then all of a sudden, you take that away, and they just don't seem to be the same guys.
1: Yeah, you know what's really interesting on the mental side of things, and you know, I didn't, I learned this kind of throughout my previous career talking to athletes, is the mental effort that it takes to use drugs when you're under a good, solid anti doping system. Many athletes say, Hey, despite the performance benefits I was getting from these drugs, I definitely felt stronger, could go longer. What it took. To figure out what drugs to take, how long they were going to clear my system, worry after I took a drug, oh shit, are the testers going to come tomorrow morning? That mental burden for a lot of these athletes far outweighed the physical enhancement they were getting. That's a good um, point. That's a tremendous amount of stress. Could you imagine? I mean, our our policy—you're going to be tested, the ability to be tested, 365 days a year. You know, an athlete who would choose to use something that night, that athlete used something. Can you imagine like listening for that doorbell or that door knock all night long, all morning long? There was some athletes I talked to that had surveillance systems up, where they would literally at night after taking a dose... Be looking at their television screens and oh shit who's coming down. It's crazy (laughs) Now it's a huge mental task
0: and they can't hide either, right? It's not like you could just go to Palm Beach and take a hotel room and, and camp out You have to like let the UFC know where you are all the time.
1: Yeah, so we have a whereabouts program And so that requires our athletes on a quarterly basis to fill out Whereabouts where they're gonna where they can be located where they're staying overnight regularly scheduled activities that they have during the day so that if usada who's administering our program wants to go out and find that athlete they can do that now it doesn't include it doesn't include or involve 24 7 whereabouts our athletes don't need to let usada know where they're going to be at all times if they're going out to a movie or Mm -hmm. the supermarket or something like that it, it doesn't mean that it just means if usada chooses on a day or night to go locate one of our athletes they have an idea of where to go find them and can find them within a reasonable amount of time.
0: I was having a conversation with, uh, to keep this as vague as possible, um, I was having a conversation with an athlete who was telling me that he knew of an athlete that was not clean. And so this athlete decided to go overseas and train. Just decided to like go hang out in some other country and train there for a while. What do you do if someone says, you know, hey, I'm going to go train in Thailand? Are you guys going to go fly out to Thailand and and test
1: them? It's one of the reasons we hired USADA. USADA has partnerships with international uh, anti-doping agencies all across the world. I mean, that's that's their job. They're constantly going to conferences. They're going out and training collection officers from other international bodies, so they do. They have the ability to reach out anywhere in the world because our population of athletes is spread across the world and get a test taken or a sample taken from them at any time. Well, let's, let's just say, like, I mean, I'm
0: not, uh, not accusing anybody of anything, but let's just say if you were um, an unscrupulous athlete and you had ties to maybe people who also do unscrupulous things and they had uh, a reasonable amount of power in a certain country, um, and you could just go there and they kind of had deals with people and they uh, they said look, you know uh, We're we're gonna give you a blood sample and We're gonna give you a urine sample But we just like you to wait here for a moment and we'll just go in the other room And we come back with this stuff and they come back and they give it to these guys it, it, are, we, are, are you getting like videotape of this happening? Are you making sure you're seeing the exact? athlete put the exact blood in the exact thing like how are you gonna make sure that there's no fuckery No shenanigans going on especially in other countries
1: yeah so there's a certain standard no matter which country the collections going on to uh, of how these how these collections happen and the doping collection officer the the DCO has to physically witness the athlete providing the sample uh, whether it be urine or blood they have to they have to and Uh, how do you prove that they did
0: that like if you're dealing with someone like I said in another country how do you prove that this uh, this Commissioner guy actually was there.
1: Well, I mean, these, you know, the DCOs are trained uh, based on worldwide collection standards and, um, you know, they're vetted before they're hired. I mean, that that could happen anywhere, Joe. It could happen in mm-hmm. this country or sure. another country. Um, but I like you know, America
0: I f- better than I like other countries, so I like to talk shit about them.
1: I think part of it would be okay, so the <laughs> laboratory gets these samples, you know, we're, I think we're doing 2,700 to 3,000 tests a year. You start looking at samples, you know, from a particular country, whether it be the United States in a certain region or another country, and you start seeing suspicion in that sample. Um, You start seeing variances in the biological passport in collections done in another country versus when, you know, maybe they come here to the United States, things like that. So it's a constant detective game um, going on. And there's, you know, things put in place for every conceivable Situation uh, to try to to try to detect that
0: it just seems like um, You're gonna catch them. It just seems like there's only so much So much wiggle room these guys have these days, but are there any things that are uh, on your radar? that could possibly be used to cheat that we're not aware of yet, that most people aren't aware of. Like the testosterone that's being done with animals, I I never heard about that before. Is there anything else like that that's going on right now?
1: That's one. I can't give you any specific example, but I will give the example of the cyclist that just got caught for the drug that's still in a clinical trial. And what the anti-doping, what that shows, what the anti-doping community's been doing is reaching out to the pharmaceutical industry and saying and querying, hey, any drugs that you have, you know, in clinical trial are being developed, do you see any potential for athletic performance enhancing benefits? And if the pharmaceutical industry said, yeah, you know, this particular drug was, a, it was called oxygen and a pill. So you take it and it create more red blood cells, similar to, to EPO, but in oral form. And so the pharmaceutical industry obviously told anti-doping, yeah, well, this is coming out. Anti-doping community was able to develop a test kind of secretly and use a test and caught somebody
0: oxygen in a pill that's what it was called yeah wow it, so it's essentially the same thing as EPO or it works in a different way
1: my understanding is essentially the same thing it causes your body to produce more red blood cells which carry more oxygen and can replenish your muscles quicker
0: now here's the rub on that okay obviously that's an illegal substance and it should be banned but what about guys who train at altitude what about guys who tr- who sleep in altitude tents like I remember on one of the countdown shows, BJ Penn was sleeping in this crazy zip-up tent. And one of the things he said in his, you know, BJ Penn's accent, he goes, you know when I'm sleeping in a plastic tent, someone's getting their ass kicked. Because <laughs> 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 he has to zip up this fucking tent to sleep in it to simulate that he's at 10,000 feet or he's sleeping there. Um, there's all sorts of other things, like uh, Ascent. Have you, You're you aware of those uh, altitude machines that they use that vary the altitude? Yeah. It's like, uh, I know... Um, uh, Ian McCall is a big fan of those. He said they have tremendous effects uh, Cryogenic chambers. I'm a huge fan of those. They have massive effects on inflammation massive effects on uh, uh Cold shock proteins all these different things that help you heal and reduce inflammation and help you train more the, If you could do what that could do in a pill form it might be illegal, right?
1: Yeah, and you know, I don't. I, I hear the argument of, "Hey, isn't that cheating?" Getting an oxygen yeah. tent, but I don't buy off that that's the same thing as taking a drug that manipulate the the hormones and steroids in your body. I think. But what about EPO? I
0: things. mean, isn't it exactly the same? I mean, if you if you take EPO, doesn't it do exactly the same thing as sleeping at altitude?
1: Well, I think it does, but it does it you know in a, in a quicker form. You don't have to put forth you know the effort of sleeping in an oxygen tent every night for a period of weeks or months. It's instantaneous. Mm-hmm. I'm
0: not on the side of EPO. Don't don't get me wrong. I don't think you should be allowed to take it. And uh, I think, as far as I know, the only fighter that's been popped for in the UFC was Ali Bagutinov, which uh, shows you how impressive Demetrius Johnson's cardio is. He outworked that guy who was on EPO at the time. But if, if he's taken that, and that's illegal, but he gets the exact same benefit as someone who's sleeping in an oxygen tent... Why is it more difficult? I, I just don't, why is that legal?
1: I, I don't think you get the same exact benefit. No? I, I think it's it's way more extreme um, in, oh, using, really? in using the drug. Yeah, that you can get your hematocrit. level. I mean, I've seen some hematocrit levels of some athletes get up in the mid-50s well, to low-60s. What are the 60s. numbers? What's
0: a normal number? So of... the
1: hematocrit level is the amount of red blood cells per blood volume. Um, normal numbers are 42% maybe on the high end, 47 or 48%. Um, I've seen them, again, in the the mid-50s to low-60s. And when you start talking about hematocrit levels at those amounts, there's so many red blood cells per blood volume that your blood becomes thick, tar-like. And I think we saw this with cyclists in the mid-90s that just discovered EPO and were using it. They were dropping dead in their mid 20s because of having strokes, because their blood became so thick that any small little blockage, the blood couldn't get through and stop circulating. You had instances where they were setting their alarms in the middle of the night and to get up and drink water and do push-ups and exercise to make sure their blood was, was still flowing for fear of it slowing down and stop flowing in the middle of the night. So you can extremely increase hematocrit levels via using drugs like this versus you know training at oxygen and oxygen tents i think maybe you can get up a little bit higher into that that normal range in the 47 or 48 percent but I haven't seen extremes of getting into mid-50s and low-60s from that.
0: Yeah, my friend who was on the cycling team uh, said that the, he would hear they, were, they would be on a tour uh, sleeping in a bus. And you would hear guys get up in the middle of the night and hear their bike come off the rack and they'd go riding because they had to. Because yeah. their heart would start beating funky and they'd be like, oh, shit. And they, they literally were producing so much blood that they had to burn some of it off. That's, that's terrifying.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if it's burning it off. It's just yeah, keeping it circulating. Keeping it circulating. Uh, but also
0: the fact that these are the same guys w- w- taking this stuff, um, not the, the cyclists, obviously, but fighters, they would get hit. You're going to get hit, and you're going to get a lot of bruising. And bruising is essentially just internal bleeding. I mean, that's what you're getting. I mean, you, you look at a guy's leg, and he gets leg kicked a bunch, and you see these big welts and b- black and blue all over his legs. That's blood. He's bleeding. It's clotting up inside of his leg, but he's bleeding and swelling. When a guy's on EPO, is there a, a more significant danger when, when something like that's going on, if you are bleeding like that or if you are bruising?
1: I, yeah, I think so. Again, I'm not a scientist, but, you know, common sense would show you if you have more, a lot more red blood cells floating around that are that are able to clot, then, yeah, you're likely running that risk. It's just amazing what people are willing to risk just to win. It sure is. It certainly is. That's been a lesson that I'm just, I'm not surprised anymore. You know, there's, you see a lot in formal, uh, you know, questionnaires, interviews of athletes that if you could give up a couple of years in your life, you know, would, and there was a pill that would allow you to win an Olympic gold medal, but you had to give up, you know, four or five years in your life, would you? And typically you see the answers to that overwhelmingly yes. Um, and you know, I think a lot of it is athletes are a little bit younger in their mid early 20s, feeling invincible at that time. Who's thinking about, you know five years on the end of your life then? And I think, you know, a lot of the decision-making of, of taking some of these performance-enhancing drugs occurs then, um, where you feel young and invincible, and who cares what you have to pay 20 or 30 years down the line uh, for making a decision now?
0: Yeah. And there's also a bunch of athletes that are putting money in the bank of medical technology and innovation. And they're like, look, one day they're going to fix this. Let me just take this shit now. And then five, 10 years from now, they'll just build me a new liver.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, one thing people were kind of surprised that this is my opinion. uh, But I understand a lot of times why these decisions are made. There is such... Temptation financially there's so there's such incentive out there financially in a lot of these sports Um, There's such pressure. I don't know what the word is distrust of Their competitors or teammates that they all feel that that they're using something There's a lot of distrust of sports governing bodies that they really don't feel that they care because their programs Aren't solid and so I've had I've had so many of these athletes really surprised that you know I say hey, I understand why I made that decision I, I get it, as opposed to, you know, the right. hell are you doing? You should never have done that. So you, you um, play I good understand cop. It. You're the good cop. I do. I mean, I really good cop. genuinely feel that. I like to think that I wouldn't make that decision. But, hell, if I was in my early 20s, mid-20s, I don't know. I couldn't sit here and tell you that.
0: And if you're in the culture of, you know, you're in these camps and everyone in the camp is using, you most likely would have a problem if you weren't, where people wouldn't trust you, or, you know, they would they'd be more likely to turn on you, or... You'd have a problem training with these people. I mean, there's there's this culture of camaraderie that comes with fight camps especially, where these guys have to trust each other because they're beating the shit out of each other on a daily basis, and they have to trust that they're hitting each other at 60%, 70%, not 100%, and that they are trying to work and help each other. Have you had resistance from any camps in particular?
1: No, outwardly, no. It's all been positive. A lot of questioning on the IV issue. So maybe quantify a little bit of resistance there. In terms of the anti doping, overwhelmingly, hey, good for you guys. This is great. And I don't know if that's some of that's lip service or mm-hmm. not, but I'm guessing that even those athletes that have chosen in the past to use, that a lot of them are like, thank God, I don't, this decision's now made for me. I don't have to be making this decision anymore. Um, now there's something in place where I can trust that my sport really does care about me. I can trust that, hey, if, if my opponent is using, he's risking at least his career you know, going down the tube. So I, I can begin to trust that who I'm fighting is clean or just being really stupid.
0: We had this conversation in Brazil about Vitor Belfort's levels uh, when he was tested during his camp for Chris Weidman. Vitor Belfort was a guy who was on testosterone replacement because he allegedly had low testosterone. And, you know, he was making it out like he was this martyr and he needed medicine because, you know, he was sick and he had an issue. And he even compared it to someone being a diabetic and needing insulin. You have to give them their insulin, which I, I thought was disingenuous. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of a crazy thing to say when everybody knows, ex- I mean, it's not a m- mystery. That he used to be 240 pounds when he was 19 years old. It's not a mystery that he was on testosterone replacement and looked like a fucking gorilla. And then during camp, he tests three times higher than Weidman. Weidman tests at 300, Vitor tests at 1,200. And everybody was like, well, what the fuck is going on? You know, wasn't it? Was, am I saying the numbers right? Was it I think four times are. higher? I four think times it higher? Yeah. Or was 900 or 1,200? 1,200, right? I think I was right. Okay. So he's. Four times higher, right? And he tells, you know, Weidman tells him, you know, I'm going to punish you. I know you were using in camp. I'm going to punish you. But you were saying that it's not necessarily the case, and that when someone tests at 1,200 through a urine test, explain that. How is
1: Yeah, and I actually uh, relied on, you know, experts to kind of guide me through this. But um, urine results like that, Uh, are depend on i think it's called your excretion level different people excrete out in urine different levels of testosterone depends a lot on your metabolism one person could be a a high excreter one person could be a low excreter it's not necessarily a representation of your true testosterone levels We talked about earlier blood tests would be way more accurate so
0: why test him for urine at all
1: well, I mean, I think the urine test is done because it's a little bit cheaper. They can initially look at the testosterone to epitestosterone ratio. That is a pretty true marker in urine, the amount of testosterone that you have to epitestosterone. The levels can vary depending on how you're excreting out, but that ratio you know, will stay, will be very accurate of what's in your body. A normal human has a one-to-one ratio um, there are some variances on the positive and on the plus and negative side. And if you look at what Vitor's ratio was there, it was within normal range.
0: Now you, but you allow up to four to one in Nevada. Is that still the case with the way the UFC has this new program? Is it still four to one? Cause it was six to one at one point in time that was criticized and it was dropped down to four to
1: one. So that's gone out the window a little bit, um, the ratio is looked at um, to determine whether or not you go to a more accurate backup test called we talked about earlier, the carbon isotope ratio test. So in all cases, you know, if, if, a, if a test proves high over whatever the number is three to one, four to one, six to one, then the determination is usually made, hey, let's go to the definitive test, carbon isotope to determine whether or not that's foreign-based testosterone. And if it is
0: foreign based testosterone how much of a time like once you get the test results Like say if you test a guy and his urine tests are kind of funky He's reading really high and then you decide to go to a blood test if he's doing something like Alex Rodriguez was doing Where it's like quick release or how would you describe it quick quick half-life? What would you describe it?
1: Yeah, fast acting fast fast clearing fast
0: clearing How would you how would you mitigate that? So ask that question again. So you do the... So you do the, the one test and okay. it shows that he's got a very high level, 1,200, right. um, and then you want to you wanna do a blood test.
1: Not necessarily. You could go right to that same urine sample and do a different test, do oh. the CIR test on that. So it can be...
0: So you don't do that ordinarily? The, the ca- carbon isotope is not done immediately?
1: In, in, our, in our program, it will be. That will be as opposed to, you know, hey, let's do the, the testosterone, epitestosterone ratio test first. In some cases, we'll go right to the USADA will go right to the CIR test and bypass the T-E ratio. And that is because of the microdosing issues. So say like an Alex Rodriguez took a fast-acting testosterone that didn't really manipulate his T-E level too much. If you were just doing that test, it would show a two or three to one maybe. And in the past, anti-doping say, okay, well, he's good. He's under four to one or six to one. Um, Where if a CIR test was done on that, they would have known right away that he was using. So under our program, Oftentimes, a CIR test will be done right away, regardless of what the T-E ratio is.
0: Okay, so if you are doing what Alex Rodrigo was, uh, Rodriguez is doing, even if he tests okay within his boundaries and normal levels, you can do a CIR test and catch him Even though it's out of a system? Well, no, no. If it's out of a system, it's
1: out of a system. But if it's a four-hour thing, if it yeah, is that
0: true? Is that actually the level? I mean, or it really is gone in four hours?
1: uh, I mean, that's that's what they say. I'd be a little bit hesitant uh, if I was an athlete to depend on. You know, Mm. if I had a drug test in five hours, that something's going to clear in four hours. They can detect pretty minute amounts, but my understanding is it does clear pretty quickly. Are Uh, you going to test
0: guys in the middle of the night?
1: uh, The USADA has the ability to do that. I don't think they're going to, you know, make that routine. But if, again, this is all detective work. If they're looking at biological passports over time and see variances between mornings and evenings, they could get a tip or other information that's, you know, non-science related, just a tip from somebody that, hey, this is what's going on in this camp. They'd have the ability to do that. Yes. Hmm. Um,
0: a tip? Has that happened before? Have you guys had tips from people like uh, that fighters are using?
1: There's a uh, so actually, USADA has a hotline or a tip line uh, that's given to all our athletes. So if you you know hear something about something going on from somebody or a camp, they can anonymously call in and lead that. And you look back at you look back at all of the major performance enhancing drug cases that have come out over the past fifteen years. You look at Balco. You look at Biogenesis. Uh, you look at Kirk Radomsky, who's a New York Mets bat boy that was distributing to athletes. was bought- a bat boy? He was. He was a clubhouse <laughs> attendant. Yep. The bat
0: boy was getting them drugs? He sure was. Wow. How'd they catch him? Is he in jail now?
1: Uh, he is a, He's a convicted felon. Um, I think he's done with probation. Um, but all of those cases, all the major cases that have happened over the last decade, decade and a half, all were a result of investigations, not necessarily anti-doping side of things and usada who we're using is aware of that they actually have someone on their staff former law enforcement who's investigator that will liaison and reach out to various law enforcement agencies both here in the united states and internationally so that say another case comes out and a local law enforcement agency goes in and does a search warrant they find you know a list of ufc athletes of what drugs they were getting or being distributed you saw it would have the ability, hopefully, to go to law enforcement and say, hey, when you're done kind of with the criminal side of things here, can you give us find a way to give us some of your evidence to use it here and uh, and use it that way? So, again, Joe, we're just trying to our program has every resource available that we know of science wise, investigative wise to create that deterrent effect. So, athlete, you may have found the newest, latest graded, graded drug that there will never be a test for. But you're running the risk of whoever's getting that for you at some point, you know, running along to some investigation and that information out and catching you on the back door. It's, it's definitely happened a lot in the past. And is that what happened with Balco? It was. So Balco was a, a criminal investigation uh, first. Um, and what we did there was interfaced with anti-doping. So we discovered drugs in Balco that were designer drugs that they were, weren't tests for. And through the back door, went to anti-doping and said, hey, here's what we've got. We're trying to figure out who Balco's clients are, what they're using, if when we bring them in, they're telling us the truth about what they've used. So the anti-doping side of things was able to develop tests for these drugs, go out and test some of these athletes, both current samples provided and samples that were frozen and left over from previous provisions, and catch some of those athletes for the drugs they were using. They then pass that information back along to us so that when we go out and question an athlete and they say, I, I didn't use anything, we will say, you're full of shit.
0: Now, when you say it was a criminal investigation first, what was the crime?
1: So, actually, that was back in my days. I was an IRS special agent, so it involved uh, financial crime. It involved money laundering. Uh-huh. So, the taking of profits from drug, drug distribution and putting them back in the financial system.
0: Oh, right, because they have to have some way to account for the money. Correct. Right, because they're making all these money. Make it look good. How like much it. does a guy like Barry Bonds pay for, for steroids to a guy like Victor Conte? Like, how much does that work?
1: He was interesting because he didn't pay anything. He paid in the form of giving advertising. It was really an ingenious plan. Instead of, you know, in exchange for what I'm giving you, you give me back money, do advertising for my supplement company go in uh, magazines and and ads and say hey you work with me and my supplements and they're the reason for your success like so,
0: zma and stuff like exactly. that
1: who knows what the value of that was of that advertising i mean for a guy millions. like barry bonds millions, millions. Yeah, it's really an ing- it was an ingenious plan money laundering plan
0: i've had Conte in here dana white fucking hates that guy but i found him to be a pleasant individual I didn't have a problem with him, and he was very forthright. He was very honest about what he did and how he got away with it and what he thinks is going on right now. Um, A lot of people are suspicious of him, of course, because, I mean, he's now, like, working as an anti-performance-enhancing drugs advocate when he became famous for being a guy who provided performance-enhancing drugs to athletes. It's a weird sort of turnaround late in life, and people are, they're suspicious, and, and, you know, rightly so. But what he has uh, what he has done is at least illuminate what he was able to pull off
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'm asked about him often and I always say hey, I, I welcome anybody over to, to the good side um, I'm a do you believe firm, him? I'm a firm believer in second chances I think Aww, you know you you have to you have to take everything he says <laughs> with a little bit of grain of salt um, I read something the other day that He still keeps a hand in kind of the dark world and that's where he learns about all this stuff. And if you're you're truly, if you're truly an anti-doping advocate and you know about things going on in the dark world and you're not, you know, exposing who those people are, then you're really not truly an anti-doping advocate. But, uh,
0: Hmm. guy's a
1: character. I mean, I enjoyed, he's one of those guys and in my former career, you run into a lot of characters like that and I enjoy everything about those people. It's just, (laughs) you know, living life and. Running into characters like that, whether in a good or bad way, so makes you, life fun. You enjoy it because it's it's part of
0: like the flavor of the gig. Absolutely, and also because you're a pretty straight edge guy. You do know? you yeah. like people who are living on the edge like that.
1: It's always fun to see how the other side lives.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't trust anybody with a fucking mustache like that. I'll tell you that. When you got one of them little skinny mustaches, there's just very few people that I trust. Maybe a couple black guys, maybe some people of Puerto Rican descent that have a little skinny mustache. But I don't know, Conte. Have mu- seen his mustache? Yeah, it's uh, there's something about that mustache that makes me I, go, hmm. You
1: know, I just hope at some point, when, because he does, he's got a bit of a platform. You know, still a lot of, oh, hell, you had him in here.
0: Mm-hmm. Look at I'll, that mustache. Get the fuck nice. out of here,
1: dog. Come on, son. I'm waiting for it. You know, he's been critical of me. I'm waiting for a really? thank, I'm, I've been. I'm waiting for a thank you from him for How's bringing him critical? over to the good side.
0: What's his criticism been?
1: Uh, I don't even know.
0: Don't listen to it. Don't good listen to it. Really. But, good for you. Um, Aldo Jose Aldo has said that he won't do the IV or, or that he won't listen to the ban on IVs. He's going to take it, and he said they'll still let me fight. You know, what do you think about that?
1: Uh, actually, when we were in Brazil a couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with him about that, and. He said it was just one of those days where he was in a certain mood, uh, maybe a little bit joking, maybe a little bit pissed off about something else and said those things and said he shouldn't have, doesn't believe those. He apologized for doing that. And uh, so I felt pretty good. Conor McGregor
0: crawled inside that dude's head and camped out, planted flags, shit all over the place. I mean, that guy was dealing with some serious psychological warfare at a level that I don't think he had ever experienced before. Yes, Connor's really
1: good at that, isn't he? He's
0: Holy the shit. best. He's the best. It's like he took Muhammad Ali and Chael Sonnen and he rolled it up in this crazy Celtic Warrior character and just and I mean just and he's good. That's the thing. He's not just a trash talker. He's fucking dangerous.
1: You it's know. A, it's a once in a lifetime personality. Yeah, he, and he pulls it off consistently. He's always on his game.
0: Well, the fact that he was willing to bet Dana and Lorenzo $3 million that he would knock Mendez out in the second round and he knocked Mendez out in the second round. I mean, he's a fucking
1: freak. He really is. He's a freak. I wonder if it if it comes naturally or he sits sits around at night plotting these things out because he's he's so damn good at it.
0: Well, he was always a very good fighter. I was a big fan of his when he was competing in Europe, and uh, you know he's fighting in the UK and quite a few. And actually, uh, I tweeted him way back in the day before he ever came to the UFC, saying that I I enjoy his fights and I hope he gets over here. And then, boy, did he get over here! Jesus Christ! I mean, that UFC weigh-ins when he fought Mendez, was the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. Of all the fights that I've ever called, all the weigh-ins that I've ever been at, I have never seen anything like that in America. And it was like we were in Dublin.
1: That's so amazing. I'm, I'm four months into this, so I'm, I'm a newbie, so I expect that now. Don't expect that. To.
0: No, that was that was a total outlier. I've never seen any well, expected if he fights again though in a bigger way. In December, when he fights Aldo, Jesus Christ, that's gonna be crazy. If Aldo makes it to it without getting injured and he makes it to it without getting injured, which is a big problem with this sport. You know, if you look at boxing matches, boxing matches that get arranged and how many of them actually come to fruition, it's most of them. Most fights get scheduled, they come and they, they actually they come to pass. With the UFC, it's it's maybe seventy percent, you know, maybe seventy. May, I mean, I, I might be wrong, but if I had to guess, like big fights, seventy-five at the most. Twenty-five percent of them fall out. It seems like. Just... Yeah,
1: it's interesting. It's it's another. It's it's lagging behind a little bit the anti-doping side because that's taken up so much of my time. But it's another responsibility under my title is to try to provide our athletes to reach out, provide them with other resources in terms of training, rehabilitation. We've. Uh, reached out to a couple companies here, domestically, Exos, which does a lot of training for NFL
0: Exos. draft picks.
1: Exos are out of yeah. What is that? How so do you it's, say a, it? it's a training spell facility. It? How do you spell Exos.
0: And what are they um, their training facilities? So
1: yeah, so they, they are, you know, most widely known from taking shoot, if you look at most of the first round draft picks in the NFL, they've gone and trained at Exos from, you know, their end of their last season in college through the Combine and they've just instituted good nutrition, good training methods. Um, we've contracted with them a couple months ago, sent a couple athletes down there. Um, I think Rashad Evans went down. Uh, Forrest went down kind of from an internal perspective, look at things. I think Luke Rockhold went down there, CM Punk. Forrest uh, is retired. He is.
0: And he went down there to look at what? Just
1: experience, like- you know, a week of training. So the idea is to get our athletes to train smarter, mm-hmm. to listen to their bodies, to, uh, you know, give them... Techniques and proper nutrition things like that so that as our guys are training smarter Listening to their bodies better there will be less instances of getting injured, you know coming up to big fights
0: And the UFC is developing some sort of a performance center, correct?
1: Correct. We are Um, That I think they're breaking ground pretty soon on that, but you know the idea would be Through consulting, you know with these other companies that have been in the business of of training high-level athletes to putting all these resources and tools and machines and space available to this state-of-the-art, world-class facility that our athletes would have the ability to come to and train, to come to and rehabilitate Um, not only UFC athletes, but I think the idea is to make this place so state of the art that we would welcome in athletes, you know, from other sports that, hey, this is the world-class place um, to go do your training and learn how to do your training. And uh, similar to, uh, as we're doing with our anti-doping program, hoping to lead the pack, the idea is to lead the pack in terms of how we teach our athletes to train.
0: Is there a consensus, though, on the correct way to train as far as strength and conditioning goes, as far as, like, how much time to spend doing skill work versus how much time to spend doing endurance work? It seems like there's a lot of debate, and then there's a lot of the athletes vary as far as their needs, their style of fighting. Like, how would you manage something like that? Yeah,
1: that, that's a tough one for me that, that I'm—I'll be the first to admit, just learning and coming up to speed. I mean, you probably know better in your, you know, involvement in MMA and what it feels like to train and what you would need to do in your training to be able to be ready to get into a, you know, real fight a month or a couple of weeks later— I'll turn that back around on you. What do you think in terms of how close to a fight these guys need to be going full speed so that when they get in that octagon, it's not a shock to the system. Like, holy shit, what's going on?
0: Well, it depends on who you ask because there's a lot of people that I respect that vary wildly on how they approach things. Like, you'll you'll talk to one guy who's a strength and conditioning coach, and he has this very specific idea of how you should train, and then another guy who's also very well-respected but completely different methodology – I'm a big fan of what Marv Marinovich was able to do with B.J. Penn and the amount of uh, work that he did with B.J.'s endurance. I think that B.J. during that time was just one of the greatest of all time. During the time we fought Diego Sanchez and Sean Shirk and the, when B.J. was in his prime. And I know during the Diego Sanchez fight in particular, it was an absolutely brutal camp for him. And he... Went and worked with him for only a couple fights because it was so so goddamn brutal But a lot of people think and uh, Nick Kurson, who's a protege of Marinovich. I've had him on the podcast we discussed it pretty pretty deep and He thinks and I, I like the way he thinks he believes that Strength and conditioning during camp is everything and that's really what you should primarily focus on that these guys already know how to fight and that really they should be putting almost all of their effort into conditioning, getting their body to the point where their body can perform at an extremely high level for five rounds, five minutes each, and that all the other skill work and everything like that should actually take a backseat to conditioning because what you're dealing with when you're dealing with a championship-level fight like that is an athlete that's so finely tuned in skill-wise already that really what you need to do is give them the horsepower and give them the gas tank, and that also... What what that also would do is it would prevent the really hard training that is breaking guys down, like the really hard wrestling training that's breaking guys down. Instead of doing that, you would just drill. Instead of uh, doing these hard sparring drills, you would just drill. Matter of fact, Tim Kennedy was just on the Fighter in the Kid podcast with uh, Brian Callen and Brendan Schaub, and mm-hmm. Brendan texted me last night and said that Kennedy said he doesn't spar. Hmm. He said he just doesn't spar he said he moves around with guys and he just does strength and conditioning work and everything like that He said but the sparring like it just you, you take enough punishment fighting hmm. So he's he's of the uh, the mindset that you shouldn't be beating yourself up in the gym. So I think there's a lot of Variation there.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that's something that that exos uh, Promotes is that hey, it depends on you know an athlete individual to individual some are, are different than others one thing that they did tell us is they were just amazed. And getting back to kind of the weight cutting thing, that an athlete who's going to compete twenty four hours later is putting their body through such extreme conditions just twenty four hours before, and the effect that that's going to have on your performance when you do an extreme cut and then put that weight back on, um, and that you know during the off season when you don't have a fight scheduled and you're maybe even twenty pounds heavier than that, you know the muscle memory of getting used to working out at that 20 pounds heavier than you're actually going to be fighting uh doesn't seem to make a lot of common sense because you're fighting as a completely different feel and, and person and muscle mass um that, that that you know training wise doesn't seem to make a lot of sense so i don't know again i'm i'm new to all this and trying to be a so, uh, sponge and absorb everything and uh yeah i've seen the horror stories. I've seen guys
0: cut too much weight and just fight like shit, and I've seen guys that really blew their opportunity at being champion. The, the best example that I've ever used is Travis Luter. Travis Luter was one of the best American black belts in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, especially at the time. He was just extremely high-level black belt, very, very technical, very strong, and um, fought Anderson Silva and didn't make weight. Didn't make weight and and when I tell you that he was on fucking death's door I've never in all my years of watching fights uh, Watching weigh-ins seeing guys look dehydrated never seen anybody look as bad as him His lips were cracked like you could see like he had like cracks in his lips where his lips had shrunken down and like his, his Like he was chapped his face was completely sunken in That's scary and he was shuffling he couldn't walk to the scale He was shuffling and he didn't make the weight. And he tried for, like, an hour and a half afterwards to try to make the weight. Still the next day, took Anderson Silva down, mounted him, was on top of him. And I'll tell you what, if Travis was 100% right there, he would have submitted Anderson. Like, Travis was submitting everybody. He was just tapping kind of people at will. Like, uh, Charles McCarthy, who's a friend of mine who trained with him in the house, he said it was like rolling with Ricardo Laborio. He said his level was, like, super high level and blew his chance and really never, never sort of reached... The, his full potential after that, but that was that was like the worst I've ever seen is like I, a guy who just blew his potential
1: i tell you an interesting stat. I think it was the American Journal of Sports Medicine. So they had a, a Dehydration rehydration study and they had certain percentages of dehydration and what that meant to a body. And I think it was 7% or more your cognitive skills decline immensely, and I think it was 15% dehydrated in the study, it's a death, imminent death. Organs were shut 15%. down. Fifteen percent. Fifteen percent. Start doing the numbers, Joe, of what some of these cuts that you've heard about and seen. I heard one the other day, someone on the radio talking about an athlete that they had that was 170, four days before a weigh-in, and went down I think to 145. And do the math on now. That's assuming all that weight cut was water. I don't know if that's actually the case, but probably. And when you're talking that well, short of time, Conor that's McLean almost fifteen or- percent.
0: Connor McGregor when he fought Chad Mendez he looked like a dead man I mean you could see I mean people were commenting it online they're like Jesus Christ look at him can a guy like that a guy like that who's fighting a guy like Mendes can a guy like that in twenty four hours orally rehydrate properly
1: yeah i I don't know what the question of that I mean I think I think our athletes are outliers they are the toughest individual you know they're genetic freaks to begin with so you know maybe this common science doesn't quite apply to them by the exact number but hey i tell you it's something we had we had a meeting the other day with our operations staff and our fighters come in on monday or tuesday and the first thing they do is weigh them in just to kind of get an idea of hey where they're looking at do they the do game a body fat or, what or a like. w- a water composition Not that i'm aware of but i, I tell you i'm going to start being aware of kind of what these numbers are coming in versus you know what what the ultimate weigh-in is and Again, just trying to be, you know, not trying to be the police, but trying to be an advocate and maybe sit down with some of these fighters and say, hey, look, look what the studies show here. You know, look what you're subjecting yourself to. Maybe you can get away with it, you know, on the outside, but on the inside, these things don't go away and you're probably doing, you know, lasting damage. Have you talked to any ex-fighters? I've talked to a few about that have... Ongoing kidney problems they are probably going to have the rest of their life thyroid mm-hmm. problems or their thyroids all messed up from these extreme weight cuts mm-hmm. It's definitely out there. Have you had it's any- devastating.
0: Yeah, it's devastating um, And well Daniel Cormier didn't make the Olympic team because it was in didn't compete in the Olympics because of his kidney shutting down um, It's a it's a giant giant problem um, It's just it's awful and it doesn't here's the thing for a guy like Aldo and a guy like McGregor the, the, what would really people want to see is what, they want to see Aldo fight McGregor, right? They don't give a fuck if they weigh in at 145 and then rehydrate back up to whatever the hell they weighed before that That's nonsense. What they should do is figure out wh- where these guys are healthy Like where are you healthy? And then we're gonna see the best fight out of these guys. The problem is the title the title is everything, right? You want to be Chris Weidman is the UFC middleweight champion of the world. If Chris Weidman releases his title and says, "Look, I can't make the UFC's 185-pound limit anymore because of this new um, non-IV using policy," so I'm just going to drop the title. Chris Weidman could still have huge super fights because he's Chris Weidman, and everybody knows he's a bad motherfucker. Mm-hmm. So if he decided to fight at 205 or whatever, people are going to line up. It doesn't matter if it's for the title. He's got a name. Ronda Rousey has a name. Conor has a name. But there's a lot of guys that just don't have a name. So for those guys, it's that, that, that title is critical. The difference between Robbie Lawler fighting Carlos Condit just in a fight and Robbie Lawler fighting Carlos Condit as a champion, it's a big goddamn difference. It's a big difference. And that's unfortunate because I think that this the, the the situation that they're in right now where they have to hit the specific weight class, I think we should match guys up based on their size and not based on weighing in 24 hours beforehand at a very specific weight. I think it's dangerous and I also think it's irrelevant. I don't think it matters. I mean, I think there's advantages that guys would have if they were a, a more than a certain amount over their opponent or less than a certain amount. You know, there's a way that you could mitigate that though. There's a way that you could figure out like what 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 is the range that these guys could weigh in but make sure that they are within the range of defense. Hydration within the range of body composition, and then they're, they're not fucking with the numbers any. Let's find out what you actually weigh. What does what, what Johnny Hendricks actually weigh when he fights? When Johnny Hendricks is at his best, that's where Johnny Hendricks should be fighting. What about Tyrone Woodley? All those guys, and figure out where everybody belongs and then compete at that level. But everybody's competing for titles. You know, and I think that is part of the problem: is the 155-pound title, the 170-pound title. But really, what we want to see is the best fighters fight against the best fighters. That's where the money's at.
1: Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I don't think there's, you know, a simple answer to this. I no. think it's, you know, it's a process and steps. I mean, all I can say is, and I already am being this, but I'm going to be the squeaky wheel here. That you know, hopefully, at some point, squeaks enough that you know, get some grease into this. And in terms of the fighters, hey. I have just one interest at in mind. I have one goal and one interest, and that's looking out for their health short and long term with everything we're doing, with this anti-doping program, with the IV ban. I mean, it, it is ultimately, I, I challenge anyone to say that I don't have that, you know, at the forefront of what we're trying to do here.
0: I certainly think you do, but I just think that the IV ban without some sort of weight class management is is almost like counterintuitive. I think there there has to be something that allows these guys who they've, you know, if a guy like Weidman has worked so hard to get to the 185-pound title, all of a sudden he can't make it anymore because he can't use IVs. It just seems ridiculous. Or because you have a policy that he's too dehydrated and you check him and you find out what he's doing to get to 185. Even though he's been doing his whole career, you guys step in and say, hey, this is too dangerous and we're not going to allow you to do it anymore. That's you know, it's kind of crazy if he's got to move up 20 pounds. He's already talked about fighting John Jones. A statement he made recently, and it's one of the things I love about this guy, Said he wants to fight the best guys in the world. And he says, if Weidman, or if John Jones, rather, comes back, he goes, I have to fight this guy, because he's the best. and I'm not leaving the sport until I fight John Jones. And because he's the best at 205, and so he wants to do that. But I just think that I think the making the weight cut and making that weight class is probably reducing his career and probably reducing a lot of these athletes' careers. They can do it; they get through it, but at what price? And that price is, I'm sure, cumulative. It has to be.
1: Yeah, I, I hear everything you're saying, Joe. Um, you know, the only thing I say is this program's been up and running now for a month, month and a half. not um, gonna listen know. to
0: me, man. They gotta listen to you. They think <laughs> I'm crazy. You gotta, you gotta talk to them. Weight classes, more weight classes. And all the people who fuck that—you're gonna water down the sport. Shut up, dummies! Shut up, all of you! You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> this fucking sport is so filled with crazy people. They're willing to do anything to win. I mean, that's one of the one of the things about the weight cut is that. The amount of effort, the titanic effort that it takes to get down to some of these weight classes and rehydrate and compete against world class athletes world- class athletes in the toughest sport in the world 24 hours later is just nuts.
1: They're superhuman on so many levels, so many levels. Their fighting skills, their ability to you know withstand pain is just incredible.
0: The mental toughness too, the mental toughness that it takes to go through those weight cuts and then compete 24 hours later is just insane. So we were talking earlier about the designer drugs that you're catching people on or these um, drugs that they're testing um, that they, like we were talking about the cyclist. Um, is there anything else that's like that that you may see coming up?
1: Possibly I mean I don't have anything you know for you here today, but um, there's constantly drugs in clinical trial phase that could have an application to you know performance enhancement
0: and how do you guys stay on top of that stuff? Like, what is, what's the method of making sure that you're aware of every new thing that these guys are doing to try to get some sort of an advantage and when these things should be legal and illegal?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's the role of the anti-doping authorities and USADA who we use. And they constantly interact and interface with the pharmaceutical industry so that when you know these things are in the pipeline, they can get a look at, hey, what's potentially performance enhancing or not. I think the pharmaceutical company has been pretty cooperative about it. I mean, you know, financially, they could probably care less, but, you know, it doesn't look good, I think, when they have a product like an EPO, which is a great drug for, you know, someone who has cancer or is anemic and helps your body create red blood cells that you need to live. Great drug. But then you, you know, most of the press about it is athletes that are using it to cheat. So I think it's good You know, from a reputation standpoint for the pharmaceutical industry to, you know, get on top of these things and seeing what the application could be and and helping anti-doping with that.
0: Is there a window where these guys are going to be able to use certain things that you guys haven't caught on to yet that are actually legal for them at a certain point? Like... Some natural supplements, perhaps, that turn out to be like a little bit too effective. Like, how do you make
1: that distinction? Potentially, and that, that really lies with WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency. And they are constantly monitoring things. There are certain things. I forget what it was. We were talking last week, but they have things on their watch list. So that something like you just talked about could be some type of legal supplement and they're taking a look at it and studying it. What are the performance enhancing benefits? Does it have side effects where that, you know, if you had athlete A, say, hey, I don't want to risk myself to those side effects. So I don't want to use that even if it is legal. Is somebody gaining an unfair advantage because they're willing to risk those side effects? So it's a constant monitoring process being done by, you know, the, the top level Anti-Doping Authority, which is WADA.
0: Now, what about unintentional contamination? Anderson Silva just got through this big, crazy trial in Vegas, which I'm sure you
1: watched. I was that. in the front row. I was right behind him. What yeah. the hell was that about? The the songs that kept playing. That was that hearing was disturbing on so many levels. So many. Explain
0: levels. to people what I'm talking about, because for some if they hear it from me, they're going to think I'm kidding. Like,
1: explain what was going on. So they had uh, they had a little conference call device, which they had actually a couple scientists on the line for that were testifying about some of his tests, and somebody out there was able to get the number, and in the middle of the hearing was playing these songs. Uh, so <laughs> Let's Anderson talk about was sex. yeah, he was taught he was testifying <laughs> about the Cialis that he thought was Cialis that he was using, and like a Shaggy song came on, yeah. Salt and Pepper song came on,
0: yeah, was- songs about sex kept. Coming on during the, it'd be such a zoo. The whole thing was just so ridiculous. Yeah, it wasn't good.
1: It <laughs> but wasn't it was, good.
0: It was great for people that were paying attention. I mean, the courtroom burst out in laughter.
1: Yeah, but it's, I mean, sad. Somebody's career, reputation at stake. You know. Right. I mean, to me, that's. I'm all about having a little humor injected into things, but I hated to see that. Um. I. Well.
0: I can't say I hated it. <laughs> I, it was just too funny to me. I, I think the whole thing was odd in the first place. Um, the the argument is for folks who uh, hadn't heard it that he was taking or the excuse is that he was taking liquid Cialis that was apparently made in a laboratory that also made steroids, and that this liquid Cialis was tainted. Unintentionally, like you get a vat of stuff and you mix it all together and then you throw the new stuff in the next vat and you haven't cleaned
1: it. His story was, it was liquid Cialis from a friend that he recently got to know that came from Thailand in a blue unmarked vial. Which, yeah, is crazy, but if you're going to make something up, would you really make that up? I, I would lead, lend more credibility to that story because of the personal nature of taking it and maybe the embarrassing the embarrassment around taken that he could have come in and said hey i used a protein powder and found something in it right i would lend some more credibility to that well
0: uh you know i had alluded to that on this show um i didn't didn't express the exact nature of the issue but i'd known about this for a long time i'd heard about the liquid cialis uh, excuse for a long time but if i'm correct hadn't he said that he had taken that same steroid when while he was healing from his broken leg I'm pretty sure that he had said that he had taken it before to heal his broken leg. And what he was surprised was that he had tested negative during camp, but then positive after the fight, and that's when they decided
1: to check out the liquid Cialis. Hmm. I wasn't I wasn't aware of, of that. That didn't come up in the in the hearing. Yeah,
0: that's why Boss Rutin was critical of it. Boss Rutin was saying that he's changed his story more than once. And Boss was saying that, that this is what he had said, that he had taken it to heal up his leg and then you know then it was this new excuse with the
1: liquid Cialis and if there's a lesson I learned over the years of seeing so many of these high-profile athletes kind of get brought to the table and you know their reputations kind of tarnished forever is come to the table and just be transparent it missed exactly transparency the the public's very forgiving very forgiving especially in a
0: sport like this where most people believe that a large percentage of the athletes at one point in time have done something that at least now would not be legal, including testosterone replacement, which was legal just a little bit more than a year
1: ago in Nevada. Which is- yeah, I mean, again, going back to what I said, the, uh, the understanding of why things happen, my personal understanding of why athletes chose to go that route, I think most of the public would be like that. Hey, there wasn't much testing going on, you know, maybe a couple weeks out the night of the fight. Um, you know, you were probably stupid if you weren't doing something based on your risk in your life every time you got in there. So definitely under those old circumstances. Now, under the new one here, I don't think people should be as forgiving because everybody should know now how serious this is, that it's, you know, year round, that there are serious consequences and the risk is far going to outweigh you know, the reward, hopefully.
0: Now, as far as inadvertent contamination, as far as accidental dosing, uh, if you buy something from some protein powder or vitamin that comes from some shop, you know, and you don't know, you know, it's supposed to boost testosterone naturally or something like that. And then it turns out it has steroids in it. How often does that happen? Is that a real issue with athletes or is it a bullshit excuse they use to cover up the fact they took steroids?
1: Very real issue. So my the career I just left to come to the UFC, I was with the Food and Drug Administration Office of Criminal Investigation. We investigated the dietary sports supplement industry and there's hundreds of products out there on the shelves, not prescription over the counter with steroids and other substances which would cause our athletes to test positive for and as we're getting out and going out and educating our athletes that is a huge portion of the education it is that you have to be more than careful extreme careful about what you take ultimately you're liable for everything that goes into your body hey, we'll be here and we'll be a resource for you to help kind of wade through those issues and those, those landmines that are out there. But ultimately, you're responsible for what goes in your body. Now, we have built in our policy mitigating factors that can reduce sanctions so that if somebody you know did test positive for a steroid, they were able to show because they kept a sample of it. Um, they told us what the lot number, what the bottle was. Someone went and got that off a shelf to ensure that, hey, they didn't just spike the sample that they had, that there was that steroid in it, that there were other circumstances about, you know, occurrences like that. Something like that could could be grounds for a reduction in sanction to as low as, you know, maybe a, a public warning for the first time. Maybe. Um, but, nevertheless, there's still going to be some type of sanction, and that'll be your first one, so that the next one that came about could, you know, double potential penalties. So it's a tough issue, man, one that I worry about a lot, because all of our fighters take supplements. We're not going to get up there and say, don't take supplements, anybody. I don't think that's realistic. In but this isn't that
0: kind of contradicting? If you think about the fact that all these athletes take supplements, mm-hmm. right, why are they taking supplements? Why? Why? Yeah, to, to gain a performance-enhancing advantage,
1: right? But these I mean, are, yeah. but how these much are, of an
0: advantage are we talking we're about? We're talking
1: supplements. You're talking, right. you know, derivatives of food. Mm-hmm. We're not talking drugs right. here.
0: But some of these derivatives of food have been known to enhance
1: testosterone development or, or, or production? Theoretically, Theoretically. You know, I haven't seen test some of these natural testosterone boosters. Uh, uh, you know, personally, I think a lot of it's hocus-pocus and just marketing and sales pitches.
0: Well, the standard ones things like creatine, we know that has a, an athletic advantage. There's a performance enhancing benefit of creatine, but creatine's legal, right? It is, yep. Yeah. So the amount is just small enough so that it's not it's under the wire. It doesn't it doesn't reach this Steroid-like level where you guys have to step in. And say uh, yeah, you can't I guess use that it. would
1: be the reasoning why WADA has not prohibited creatine that You know in terms of of the level of what it's really gonna do for you It's it's minor
0: is there an avenue that fighters have where they can send you guys stuff that they're thinking about Taking and then you could test it like say if uh, a guy is at you know some vitamin store or something like that and see some human growth hormone booster that's all amino acids and totally natural i'm like i don't know man can we can they send it to you
1: uh no we don't have anything in place where they can send it to us that would be you know i'm sure we get inundated with things and be spending you know money we could be spending on on testing on that but what they do do is shoot i get 20 to 30 a week maybe emails from athletes about hey here's what i'm taking can i take this one um that one and Typically, what I do is forward that to the United States Anti-Doping Agency, USADA, where they uh, actually have a, a PhD a woman who's, she, she is probably the nation's expert on dietary supplements, and she buys, USADA will buy on their own 100 or so a year and test them themselves. They actually have a website that lists a lot of these that have tested uh, positive for substances that would, you know a positive test under our program. So yeah, we're constantly answering questions, providing resources. but ultimately I tell everybody and they're disappointed and I say, I could never give you a hundred percent green light to take something. I can't on the other side say hundred percent, don't touch that one. Right. I can give you red flags, but you know, even, you know, the most reputable company that sells, you know, their vitamin in Costco. You don't know about that one bottle from that one batch. I'll give you the horror story of all time. It's in the it's in the news. You can Google it and read it. But there was a, a vitamin company um, that had a vitamin B, I don't know if it was 12, I think it was, manufactured in Long Island a couple of years back. And the guy that was manufacturing it on the run before the vitamin took did a run of a raw product that he got from some guy in the south, Ran that through the machine with instructions of how much to put in each capsule. Sent that off to the guy in the south. The vitamin company's product is next on the machine. He didn't clean the machine off well enough. And that previous product had a designer, anabolic steroid, SuperDrawl methasterone, which is one of the most powerful anabolic steroids. It's orally taken. that got into the B12. The B12, I'm, tr- I'm thinking it was maybe... Uh, It was a reputable retail store where it was sold. A week or two later, elderly people started presenting themselves at hospitals in this area where it was being sold with yellow eyes, yellow palms, because they were ingesting a vitamin that had this very toxic steroid in it, and they were getting sick from liver damage. Luckily, that's the extreme But there have been cases of, and when you talk, when then we start talking the sports supplement industry, which is, you know, testosterone boosters, maybe more edgy stuff, you see that happen way more often. I invite you after, go on USADA site. It's publicly available. Uh, It's Supplement 411. They have listed all of the dietary supplements that they've bought this year and tested. I was just looking at it last night. I don't know if it's over 100, but it's probably more than 50 in there, which the public can still go out and buy. Uh, they're on the shelves of stores, and they contain, in many instances, anabolic steroids, in all instances, compounds which would cause our athletes to test positive.
0: Wow, that's crazy. There's that many of these things. Here it is right here. There it is. Supplement 411, realize, recognize, and reduce. So if you so scroll let's down. Say, let's scroll down and see the down, list.
1: Keep going. Go Oh, go back up a little bit. High-risk list there on the left.
0: High-risk supplement Products. Now you're gonna
1: to have to enter. You can put my name in there, or maybe put Joe's name in there. You have to so put know a, a name. I think the idea Don't put behind my that, name in there, <laughs> motherfucker. The idea behind that <laughs> is actually a protection of the athletes, so that if you went in there um, and you put your name in, and then later said, "Hey, I went and searched," you know, you saw the site, um, there would be a record of of you having searched that. All right. Let's see what we got here. Okay, you got it. What do we got?
0: There Here's you go. all these different. Um, You're scrolling down, but scroll the page down first so we get a full f- screen. So there you go. All Andro those. Liquid. And that stuff has got DHEA. Product contains a list of prohibited substance. Label lists of prohibited substance. Product contains prohibited substance testing. Revealed presence of one androstenediol. And, and that stuff's illegal now, though, isn't it? Androstenediol,
1: they, they, those pro hormones, used to be able to sell those. There is. There was a new law passed, uh, it was late last year, early this year, the Designer Anabolic Steroid Control Act, or DASCA. And it basically made it easier to quantify some of these designer drugs as steroids and took a whole bunch of known ones that weren't. On the steroid yes list yet and converted them to controlled substances, but here we're still only at the A's on, This is on a the crazy list. Left.
0: This is a crazy list. Look looking at all this stuff a lot of it is interesting dial yeah. Wow This is amazing now It used to be just a few years ago that you could basically I mean I guess more than a decade ago now But you could basically buy steroids from like GNC. I mean the stuff that they had was oral steroids.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's still some of these out there. They've just become more called designer angel nature. Dust? <laughs> Crazy,
0: look at the fucking list of prohibited substance and this angel dust shit. Oh, my God. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll we'll leave it to anybody who wants to look into this. Yeah. Away. So, I
1: mean, our athletes, we're constantly directing them toward that. Obviously, yeah. if it's on this list, don't take it. But there's hundreds of others, you know, that aren't on that list. They only have so much time and resources to buy these. They, they could probably hire another two or three PhDs and buy these full time and triple or quadruple that list that based on madness. what I know of the industry
0: that's crazy so an athlete going to a vitamin store and just buying a bunch of these things off the counter there's a very good possibility that he's going to get act- actual steroids in those yeah, things
1: yeah I'd, I'd be very concerned and that's wow. what wow we pass along to them they now, should be concerned
0: now the story that you told about the b12 is really disturbing because i would think that if they cleaned it at all how would it be possible these trace amounts would get into these people's vitamins to the point where they're getting sick from liver damage from this toxic steroid yeah,
1: they, they obviously didn't do a good job and you or know didn't as, clean
0: it at all it exactly. seems like
1: you know as uh so the dietary the, the laws in here in the united states and You know, for foods and dietary supplement, there's no pre-market review of a product. So you and I, and in fact, I think the Bells you had on last week as part of Bigger, Uh Faster, Stronger did a little piece on what the dietary supplement industry is. And I think he hired a couple people off the street Mm -hmm. to make supplements and showed you could put them right to the shelf. That's accurate. So it's up to the FDA after the fact, after something's already been on the shelf. After probably somebody's already got sick or hurt, unless you have somebody in the FDA being very proactive, which I tell you, coming from the FDA, they're not proactive. They're a reactive agency um, that typically either a complaint has to be made or somebody gets hurt before they go out and you know enforce what the law is. That product shouldn't be at the she- on the shelf. They need to do a much much better job. And especially in my position now where I have this, you know, group of athletes, which I feel very fatherly over, I I would call on the FDA to do, you know, a way better job than what I saw was happening on the inside. It's a huge organization, mostly regulatory. I was on the criminal side, but they have a huge population of regulatory employees that they could be doing a much better job in managing and taking these products off the shelf.
0: It just seems almost like there's no way to keep up with it. If there's, that, I mean, you looked at so many different supplements uh, right there that just were the letter A, and how many of them all told did they have on their list? Jamie, you could a- answer that. How many? Uh, if you see, it, is there a number that shows how many they have?
1: No, these were all even just tested this year. <laughs> right, she's <laughs> been doing that for a period. Oh of Oh my
0: God, that's so crazy! Wow, because uh, you know you'd heard about that before. From athletes, we've all heard, you know, that he, he took a uh, a supplement and it turned out to have uh, a banned substance in it and inadvertently tested positive for steroids. And a lot of times you think they're full of shit and that's just their excuse. But, wow, I'm looking at a different way right now because of that.
1: Yeah, it's it's no doubt concerning.
0: Now... What about, is it possible that one of these things, like an HVAC machine or, or uh, altitude training, or is it possible that one of those things will eventually be so effective that you guys are going to have to think about banning that as well?
1: I don't know. I mean, we're, we're following the WADA prohibited list and WADA prohibited methods, mm-hmm. so it ultimately would be, if, if WADA decided this, it would fall under our program. And actually, under our program, um, you know, I think we'd have the ability to evaluate it and determine whether or not we wanted to adopt it. We likely would. I mean, WADA is the gold standard, and you know they're not just arbitrarily throwing things out there that, that wouldn't give someone an unfair advantage to put on their prohibited list, so we'd follow along, likely.
0: Now, one of the things that I really wanted to make sure I talked to you about because it was one that really raised my eyebrows when we were talking in Brazil is gene doping. And it seems like we are at this very uh, strange point when it comes to technology and innovation that there, it's. I don't think they're more than a decade away from doing something very bizarre to human bodies where it might be undetectable or might be so prevalent that it might change the rules. Um, if you, you're aware of CRISPR, do you know about uh, this innovation that they created in uh, 2012 called CRISPR that you know. allows them to much more efficiently um, manipulate genes? And they're doing it mostly, you know, they're testing it in uh, non-viable embryos in China, and they're doing it in all different animals and different things. But the, the idea being is that within a certain amount of time, it's just... Undoubtedly going to be something that they experiment with with people. In fact, uh, I have a friend who knows someone that was they were traveling to the Middle East where in this one lab they were performing these tests where they were going to make it so that you could determine I mean this is all a lot of it is um, in the preliminary stages and a lot of it is uh, it hasn't been totally proven that it's effective but they're gonna be able to manipulate eye color they're gonna be able to manipulate sex change the hair color they're gonna be able to do all sorts of different things to To the baby in in the embryonic stage to change what they are as adults and The idea of creating a super athlete through genetic manipulation is not that far away
1: It's crazy Um, You know I know anti-doping when they get together many times during the year and have their conferences and bring together leading scientists it's almost always you know one or two hour block on where Gene doping is, is going where it is now where it, is it now? Yeah, I don't, I don't know the technicalities of where it is now, how close athletes are doing it. But God, man, you talk about taking a risk. One thing to, to take a drug, but when you're manipulating your gene, who knows, you know, in five, shoot, one or two years, what that's going to do to you. Yeah. Um, it feels like an X-Men movie, though, doesn't it? Does, it does, like Jurassic Park, you know, or getting out of control real quick. I mean, <laughs> Wolverine. you seen that happening?
0: <laughs> I'm talking about Wolverine. Guy heals like that. Insane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jurassic Park, Wolverine. All the. I mean, I, I just feel like there, people are going to be the first to take the leap. There's going to be someone or some government or some. You know athletes. who it's going
1: to be? It's going to be the bodybuilding community. And every drug that I've seen used in in athletics, performance, and anti benefits, that is the community that always tries it first. Those guys are willing to risk anything. What does it get big or, or die trying? Kind of the motto that is very common. Uh, saw it firsthand. They're willing to try and be the guinea pig for anything. And Those they fucking get a little guys bit
0: die young. They do. And a lot of those guys die They're young. They're usually
1: the ones that refine how the drugs are taken and determine, hey, this, even though it's you know marketed or promoted for this, actually will do this for you as well. And saw that firsthand where non-bodybuilding athletes would rely on advice from them of how to do it and what the effects were well, they over and over again. Like saw that
0: insulin, right? Yeah. Which is super dangerous, isn't it? No
1: doubt. Yeah.
0: Make you a diabetic real quick. <sighs> um, myostatin inhibitors. That's uh, something that I have been fascinated ever since I saw a photo of those whippets that have that Crazy, genetic, huh? they're just an aberration in the whippets yeah. from breeding. And they've been able to manipulate cows and pigs and and cause it to happen now. And pigs I think are the latest ones they've been able to do it to where they have double muscle.
1: Yeah, and, I've seen some of those photos, insane.
0: And they've been able to do it to mice and the fucked up thing about mice is they live longer. They've doubled their lifespan, I think. And they look awesome. Fuck, <laughs> go to the beach. <laughs> Flex. They look like Kevin Randleman mice. <clears throat> I mean, what is uh what's going to happen when that stuff makes its way into MMA? What do you do?
1: Yeah, I mean my guessing in, in anti doping is it's you're gonna at some point get to some type of gene testing and the ability to to look at human genes and see if they've been you know, manipulated or inhibited.
0: But what if someone has a natural uh, manipulation? Like there's a boy that was born, I think it's been more than one person, but I know of one that was born in Germany that has that same issue that these cows have and these whippets have. And this young boy, there he is. Jesus (laughs) fucking Christ. Is that real? That's not real. Oh, come on. Is that real? Wait a minute. Scroll up. Scroll up. Don't hold on. How genetic engineering to make us look like bodybuilders naturally just, just scroll down so I can hear what shoot. In the past post Well look into this because this might be bullshit because that's Chris Bell right there posing with that cow That's from bigger stronger faster Find, find out if because I know there was a young boy who looked different than that because that looked like a, a kid with an adult arm The other one looked like a kid that had like a six-pack It was it was really bizarre He had really thick leg muscles and and they were saying that this child was born without that gene, mm. the myostatin inhibitor gene. And that um, this is something that's, it might be him. Yeah, myostatin oh, muscle yeah, inhibitor. That looks real. Like, look at that. That does look real. That kid is fucking shredded. Mm. Look at his six-pack. That's nonsense. He looks like he's got a turtle shell growing out of his <laughs> stomach. Jesus Christ. That kid is going to be a stud. So what do you do with a kid like that? If a kid like that wants to compete in the UFC, do you say, no, you're a mutant? You have to compete in the X-Men games?
1: Yeah, I don't know. You know, I always like seeing that that genetic freak of nature that comes along every the once in a while. Walker, Whether the it's Herschel Walker or even like a Babe Ruth, who was mm-hmm. you know had a boiler on him but was obviously strong as hell. So maybe one of he's he's one of those those cool people that come along once every generation and everybody can get behind because they know and you know they're knowing that that's real. I don't know.
0: Well, it's real, but it's also a genetic freak accident. I mean, he is definitely a real kid. I mean, it didn't, he wasn't born, as far as we know, wasn't created in a lab, but he has some sort of a freak advantage. Well, doesn't,
1: I mean, LeBron James is a genetic freak accident, is he? I mean, one could argue that.
0: Yeah, Um, no, you you absolutely can, and you would be right, but he's not competing in fighting.
1: I see. That is a little bit more extreme there. Um, I don't know how you deal with that. I mean, obviously, he's going to be able to show through medical records that it's been that way and. All through his life and didn't just suddenly appear when he was 16 and did manipulate his genes. So, I mean, I guess you can show that it is natural. I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. It seems like a, for your job, it seems like there's like a window of
0: time for you to enact change before all this crazy genetic shit starts rolling in from China and Russia and who knows where. Not accusing China and Russia, but they have been known to do some funky things in the past.
1: Yeah, you know, I worked, part of my last job, I worked uh, at the airmail facility at San Francisco International Airport, and part of that job was to monitor everything coming in from China and the stuff that came through there, and and my primary focus was on drugs and raw product and compounds that were put into dietary supplements here, but the majority of bad stuff going into these supplements coming here, that's where it's coming from. From China? It is, yep. They don't have a lot of rules over there. They don't, and that's why it's also scary. The manufacturing standards over there aren't good so that they'll send something over to you know a U.S. manufacturer here saying, hey, here's what's in this product or this raw compound, and the U.S. manufacturer will take that at its word and really not know what's going into his product, and that's why often you see supplements that don't have on the label what's, what's really in them. It's not cost-effective for them to test every batch and every lot that comes in. So you see a lot of that as well.
0: Well, I learned from The Sopranos that most of the shipping containers that come into the United States don't get tested.
1: That's true. The volume that comes in, it would be in pot. You'd have to hire a million or two million people to inspect everything. So they target things. I mean, they intelligently target. You know, depending on what areas it comes from and what you know what is declared at. But no, there's the, the percentage of things that actually do get looked at and tested is is pretty low it's just kind of disturbing wow
0: it's just uh, it's amazing to consider that there's so many shipping containers that are coming in from somewhere like china on a daily basis and who knows what could be possibly in them scary yeah now as far as like what is prohibited and banned right now how many different things are prohibited and banned
1: we could actually pull up wada's got their prohibited list uh available and that's one of the cool things about our policy is how transparent it is everything that we're doing our rules the ufc rules our fighters can go look at their support personnel can look at the public can go look at they can look at the water prohibited list. the water prohibited method it's out there for everyone to see another thing that you know a lot of people are surprised at this but actually when we As our testing, we're testing now, but it goes forward and starts really in earnest, USADA will start posting who's tested and how many times they're tested by athlete name. By the end of this year, public can pull up the USADA UFC website and say, ooh, UFC fighter A was tested eight times, UFC fighter B, they were tested three times. Total transparency. And that's done, again, to go back to what we talked about earlier trust and credibility of the system. It's it's paramount. It's huge for us, for USADA to be able to say, we're not hiding anything here. It's all out in the open what we're doing so that athlete, you know, if, if you don't really think you know what's going on or think this is going... Here, here, it's all out there in the open for you. Take was, a look at exactly what we're doing.
0: It was one of the things that people found disturbing about the Anderson Silva allegations was that it was revealed that he had never been tested outside of competition except this one time where most, he tested negative. Most where, of our
1: athletes fall under that same circumstance. Um, Nevada, California started doing it too, was probably the best. I think maybe New Jersey where they would do what we call enhanced testing, where they would maybe take the top two or three fights on a card and go out for maybe six weeks. That was the extent uh, of any out-of-competition tests. You know, as we educate, we're going out to different gyms. Uh, We're educating the fight cards uh, on the Wednesday before a Saturday fight. We usually ask the question, hey, who's been tested other than, you know, a day of the competition test? Very few hands go up, you know, maybe a couple per session. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of, again, understanding why an athlete will do something, hey, when you're not testing anybody, unless it's on the day of the fight, which is really just an IQ test, mm-hmm. I mean, as long as you're smart enough to know how fast a, a drug will clear your system, you could easily use drugs in the past and get off them, you know, a week or two ahead of time, have them clear your system and maintain the benefits of those drugs, most of them through the fight. So is it, is it any surprise? Uh, why? You know, especially when you're risking your health Mm -hmm. and in some arguments your life when you're getting in that octagon. Is it any surprise why a lot of athletes have made that under really no testing in the past? It's not to me.
0: But a guy like Anderson Silva, who's widely considered to be, if not the greatest of all time, one of the top two or three greatest of all time, the fact that he was only tested once out of competition and failed, that's uh, that's really disturbing to a lot of people. They go, "Well, well, you know, you're looking at these spectacular performances that he was able to have. Who knows what he was under or on when he pulled those off?
1: Yeah, I mean and not just, you know it taints a legacy. Looking at him individually, but yeah, you extrapolate that out with, you know, everybody in this sport that likely, you know, if he wasn't tested out of competition, how about the other five hundred and forty nine behind him if he's at the top of the game? So you extrapolate that out, it's scary. Um, so hey, we'll see we'll see real quick here. I mean I think a lot of it though. Early on is, and thank you for this platform today, but just getting the message out, being that deterrent effect up front, you know, having those athletes in support look now saying, okay, the game's changed now. It's no longer, you're not going to be tested. You don't trust your opponents. Now the game's changed that they're using every method and tool available. They're using blood, urine. They're testing for specific drugs. They're looking at a biological passport. So if a specific drug doesn't show up, they could catch somebody that way. Hell, they're freezing our blood and urine that if a test isn't available today, it may be in a year or two and they'll go back and test that. And then maybe if I'm not fighting, my, my legacy is, is done. Hopefully everybody's hearing all these things that we're doing. Uh, hearing me talk about experiences i've had with athletes in the past about how damn stressful it's going to be for a ufc athlete right now to use drugs and get away with it Mm. they are going to be thinking about that 24 7 i guarantee you oh shit who's coming tomorrow okay how long do i got before this clears my system can i trust the person that's telling me that all this shit's going to be happening from now out and the hope would be being that to turn up front so the decisions made on the front end okay This is something we can do now, as opposed to all of a sudden dozens of positive tests on the back end. The hope is I can get out and do a good enough job of expressing how serious this is going to be that that our population of fighter hear that.
0: Now, what about the difference between in competition and out of competition testing, and as far as like what the penalties are for out of competition testing, and what about recreational drugs in competition and out of competition testing? Like John Jones tested positive for cocaine. And it was out of competition, so he was still allowed to compete. And a lot of people were kind of critical of that. Like, well, how is that possible that you test a guy, he tests positive for a banned substance, and yet he's still allowed to compete? You don't even hear about it. But the results were known before he fought, and they never went public.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of different issues there. So let me, one at a time. So, first, are okay. UFC policy. So, out of competition. The tests for out of competition drugs, those drugs or those substances will be your hard substances, your anabolic steroids, your human growth hormones, your, your blood doping type drugs. Those are tested for both out and in. Those are tested 365 days a year. In competition, and the definition of in competition under our policy is six hours before the weigh in to six hours after the fight. During that period of time, the drugs tested will be your drugs of abuse, your recreational drugs, marijuana. Stimulants, including cocaine, um, other drugs. So there's only really a you know a 48 hour or so window that those will be tested for. Those recreational drugs are not tested for at a competition. In the John Jones situation, that was a Nevada State Athletic Commission test. Uh, they had the same rules at the time. Drugs of abuse were to be tested for only in competition. My when understanding. You say drugs
0: of abuse. You mean recreational drugs? Recreational like drugs. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. Some My understanding is somebody made a mistake and checked the box to do recreational drugs in an out-of-competition collection.
0: Oh, so he wasn't supposed to be tested for cocaine. Correct.
1: They, you know, their policy oh. was not to test for cocaine, marijuana, other stimulants out of competition. It was a, a mistake of checking a box. So when it is,
0: turns out positive, he's not punished for it because they weren't supposed to test for it in the first place? That's my understanding,
1: yep. Okay. Um, You know, it's unfortunate. I don't like when any mistakes are made like that. I think, you know, even though it was Nevada State Athletic Commission, it taints the entire anti-doping, you know, arena. I think anti-doping needs to be almost perfect because, again, going back to that trust and credibility factor, regardless of who's doing it, when they make mistakes in anti-doping, like a false positive. I mean, to me, a false positive could never happen because no one then would ever trust anything that's going on for right. uh, you know mistakes like that um, collection errors where the collectors aren't going observing if you have holes in the system and it gets out doesn't matter who's doing it i think it taints all of anti-doping and so that's one of the reasons we went to usada is these guys have been in the business longer than anybody else they're known as kind of the gold standard entity in all the world they are in that business. They've been doing it for 15 years. They know what all the pitfalls are and they expect themselves to be perfect. And I think that's that's huge to lend that credibility and trust to our athletes. Nevada recently
0: changed its levels of acceptable use of marijuana. They changed the levels of acceptable metabolites in the system. What is it at now? And what you were discussing with me in Brazil, you were saying that you essentially would have to fight high in order to test positive.
1: Yeah, likely. So Nevada adopted, in terms of marijuana, what the WADA standard was, and that's 150 nanograms per milliliter. Uh, It probably doesn't mean much to most people, but to give you some perspective, it used to be 15 nanograms per milliliter. So they've increased it 10 times, 10 times. Exactly. Um, so you'd have to be under the influence while you're fighting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's tough. Cause that's, as we're out educating, the next question we get, you know, is, Hey, well, how long would I, if I was a chronic smoker, how long would I have to be off it? It's tough to say each individual varies in terms of how they metabolize the fat content on your body may store it longer. So we can't give our athletes guidance. Like, Hey, if you do it a week out or two days out, you're fine. Um, The only thing we can give them is just kind of what statistics have borne out. Um, USADA's tested all their Olympic athletes, um, thousands now under this standard of 150 nanograms per milliliter over the last couple of years. They've had very few positive tests, maybe, you know, a couple.
0: Then along Um, comes Nick
1: Diaz. (laughs) True. He was under the 150 nanogram per milliliter standard at that point. He was under. Yeah. But he still tested positive. No, I mean, he it, was over that. Oh he was, oh, he was over. When I mean under, he fell under oh. you know that standard. So what
0: was yeah, what was, was his over. test results?
1: I don't know specifically what it was, other than it would have been over 150. So he essentially fought high. Probably respect. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Imagine that you're not just fighting Anderson Silva, you're fighting him while you're stoned. Goddamn, Nick, Nick Diaz is a beast. <laughs> I mean, I don't advise it, but I respect it kind of crazy though right that you could uh fight in the ufc in the main event like that
1: yeah i don't you know i was a i was a basketball player a college basketball player and uh you know when i played i had guys on my team that would get stoned before practice Mm -hmm. um dominate practice
0: yeah people love it uh jiu-jitsu too jiu-jitsu it's a huge part of the jiu-jitsu world so many guys like you go to uh, a lot of jiu-jitsu schools and you'll see the parking lot before everybody goes into training guys are smoking pot it's very, very common because they feel like it puts them in a zone. My own personal experience, I feel like it does. It puts me in a, in a zone. It makes me understand the techniques better. It gives you like more of a sensitivity to training.
1: Well, how about in the MMA world because you're worried about so many different things, a strike, a take. That you got mm-hmm. so many things to worry about. I mean, do you find that you're focusing in on one thing and you're not paying attention to... No,
0: no, 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 unless you're not ready. This is what I find. I find that it's not that good for learning things. I find that when you're learning something, especially like if you're drilling something, I find the drilling is better done sober. Like I'm better off at learning things sober. But once something is committed to my nervous system, once I understand how to do the move, like there's certain positions... There are certain positions that they just fall into. The way uh, Eddie Bravo always describes it best, I love this uh, analogy, is like, you know when you tie your shoes? You don't even think about it. You just whoosh, you just tie your shoes. Because you've tied your shoes every day right. for your whole life, and it just becomes natural. There's certain positions where you find yourself sinking into submission. You don't even know what's happening until you've done it. Because you've done it so many times in drills that it just becomes automatic. Those are enhanced by marijuana. But the learning part, I feel like, you, sometimes you don't get all the finer details, but maybe that's me. Yeah, you know, I think there's also the possibility that everybody has their own different way of uh, uh, Experiencing marijuana the biodiversity aspect of human beings. It's some people just don't like it at all I have friends that just can't do it. They'll smoke a little pot. And they're like fuck. They just hate it. It freaks them out They don't like doing anything on it and then other people they like doing everything on it So I don't know I don't know what other folks feel, but for me, I feel like I learn things better when I'm not high. But mm-hmm. I feel like once I'm, once I understand something, it just become you know, it's, and then it's like a second nature thing. Mm-hmm. Then I I feel like I'm more tuned in. If that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, that is that's interesting because there's the argument out there from a lot like why is that even banned? That's not. How is marijuana performance enhancing? So it's it's interesting to hear you say that.
0: I think it can be a performance enhancing drug. I really do. Well, how uh, about I've how t- about
1: deadening? You know, it's obviously used for pain relief. So mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think about hey, it could mask pain? Certainly
0: could. It's certainly possible. It's definitely not. You're it's not baseline. You're not you're not sober. So the the idea that. Anything that you could use that could possibly give you an advantage. I just know it gives you an advantage in jujitsu. Jiu- I know it does. Mm. I know so many guys use it. So many guys roll with it. Like big name guys that mm. that are high level jujitsu competitors. They train high every time and they love it. And. I just think you can't ignore that. I think that the, it's, it's quite possible that there's an advantage to using it. Hmm. And then the pain relief aspect of it, look, you can't fight on pain pills, right. and if, you, if there was a pain blocker that allowed you to not feel impacts of strikes, and you just went out there and fought and dealt with the consequences tomorrow when it wore off, that would be illegal, for sure. Well, marijuana is absolutely used to help people with pain management. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it should be legal to compete with. Mm. I just think I I think there's too many possibilities. I also don't think a lot of testing has been done on the performance enhancing aspects of marijuana. But what has been revealed recently is the benefits that ultra marathon runners experience yeah, with doing marijuana,
1: yeah. that they can push through better, just put their mind in a different mm-hmm. place and not yeah focus I t- on the hours and hours of monotony and. Mm-hmm.
0: I don't think you can ignore that. I no. think uh, I think that's certainly something that should be considered. And um, if you're going to ban a lot of different things, and obviously I, I like marijuana, I'm a, an enthusiast, but I think that there's there's absolutely potential that it could be a, a performance enhancing drug in a lot of ways. I was people mocked me on that for a long time, but now that this these new studies are coming out, especially with uh, ultra marathon runners, I feel vindicated. <laughs> Jeff, I feel vindicated. Good for you. Thank you. Um, is there anything else we should cover? We've, we've pretty much nailed almost everything. Um, the comprehensive aspect of the drug testing policy, the randomness. Uh, I believe the top athletes are going to be tested five times a year randomly. Is that no, what's going I th- on I mean, now? That's,
1: I think if you look at the average with our population versus how many tests that were contracted to do or that you saw as contracted to do with us, um, it'll average to that. But, you know, again, everybody will be able to go on and see starting soon here. Who's tested by name? How many times? And you're not going to see across the board five for everybody. Likely, you're going to see ten or a dozen per year for some people. Really? Maybe two or three. And is there? It's a... not. Oh, sorry, it's sorry. not random testing. It's intelligent testing. USADA is not going to say, "Hey, we're going to roll the dice and whoever comes up, they're going to look at everything from tips they may get. Hell, they'll even look at physical appearances of athletes. You know, does this athlete?" pass kind of the physical appearance smell test and if they don't hey maybe we need to test that person a little bit the more
0: physical appearance smell test <laughs>
1: really so like
0: like what would you like you look at a guy and you go man that guy just looks juiced he looks different come on you've seen it yeah but i don't know man i mean i've seen it on guys that have tested negative and i've seen it on guys that have been accused of things but they've tested negative every time like i agree, I Rafael agree that- dos Sanjos. Rafael Dos Andros was the UFC lightweight champion. Mm-hmm. When he beat Pettis, and he beat Pettis in such a convincing way, boy, there were so many people accusing that guy of being on performance-enhancing drugs. But if you look at his body over the years, it really hasn't varied that much. A little bit from the first time he was in the ufc but that was before he was on a con- comprehensive strength and conditioning program you look at him like over the last few years mm-hmm. he's pretty consistent but yet once he wins the title everybody starts pointing fingers at him and if you look at him like pull up a, a picture of uh, Rafael dos anjos ufc lightweight champion of the world uh, when he is fighting and when he's in shape and he's fit yeah he looks like like I would like to look. <laughs> like if you were on steroids, I would say uh, people would take steroids if they could look like this guy. So does he pass the smell test? Like see see if you could find a picture of him uh where he's just looks jacked. So like there's a picture of him over in the far left up there. Yeah, that's him after he beat Pettis. But look there, it's like, you know, that looks just like an athlete. But that looks okay, that's a perfect one. That's him. When he was uh, fighting Pettis, I believe, is that from the same fight? Yeah, 185. Okay, look at that—he's fucking shredded. His six-pack has a six-pack. I mean, but not much different physically, other than like a little bit less body fat. I mean, he's a fucking stud, you know. I mean, that's why he's the champ. Obviously, there's a lot of hard work that goes into that. But when people look at him, you know, you say, well. That 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 looks like a guy who, if if someone didn't look like that and they took something and looked like that, you would say, well, then the guy's on steroids. But if he always looks like that, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, to, I, people I agree are different.
1: With you. There's outliers. Uh, you know, over those that 15 year law enforcement career I had involved with all these cases. I mean, I knew of many athletes who looked like they did who didn't, or at least no evidence mm-hmm. appeared of it. Many who didn't look like they did did uh this is strictly you know another tool this to be used it doesn't mean all the time that you know an athlete that doesn't pass the smell test will test positive but a lot of the times it does hey all it means is a test it doesn't mean that person's oh you're you're positive because you look like you did it's like hey you maybe an extra test or two right And if i was that athlete that was that freak i'd say hey yeah man Test me more because people are accusing me of it. So it'll be cool at the end of the year. Everybody will look at my stats on the web page and see I was tested 10 times and no positive test for me here. So you know, I'm hoping a lot of, you know, this is, it's going to be, you know, in terms of the whereabouts program, the amount of tests our athletes getting, it's, it's, it's going to be an inconvenience, but I'm hoping that, there's a lot of acceptance and embracement of it that like, hell yeah, not only is this the baddest sport in the world, we're the toughest dude, but we have the toughest anti-doping program, and bring it on. I'm hoping that there's a lot of that, And the sentiment that I get is as we' go out and talk is a lot of that. Uh, maybe it's lip service, I don't know, but um, I would like to think that you know
0: it'll certainly become that. If it's not that right now, it'll certainly become that. Is there any potential for manipulation by opponents? calling into hotlines, accusing someone of something and having them test, giving false information, you know, false tips.
1: Sure. There always is. Like, I, de- Con- I, I could see Connor doing that. I dealt with that all the time in, <laughs> in law enforcement, right? The first, right. Time, first thing a tip comes in, you have to evaluate right. who is this person. Are they an ex-wife mm-hmm. or an ex-husband? Okay. Hey, are they being sued by this? You know, you got to right. evaluate that. And you saw it will do that too. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so does someone have to say who they are when they give a tip or can they leave anonymous tips? They can leave it anonymously. if I was Conor McGregor, I'd be calling that fucking Aldo hotline all day. I bet he would (laughs) just to fuck with him, you know? There's got to be guys that are going to do that, right? The brogue might give it away, I don't know. Yeah, right? Uh, This fucking shite. (laughs) Um, But a guy like, like, say, Dos Anjos, you know, like who has that appearance, just Mm -hmm. looks absolutely shredded and is beating everybody. There's automatically going to be people that point fingers at a guy like that, right? Potentially, sure. Is there any other type of testing that they're working on, On you know, that's on the pipeline that may perhaps be even more effective than what they're doing now?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah? Sure. I mean, again, I'm not the scientist. I don't get too far in the weeds when the scientists in these conferences break off in a little group, or if I ever have, a lot of it goes over my head. I don't understand what they're talking about. But, I mean, there's really, really smart people that their profession and life is dedicated this arena of anti-doping figuring out what's out there figuring out if there's not a test for something how to do it and develop it there's some super intelligent people on that mission out there so i'd be concerned if i was using anything that at some point someone's not going to come up with a test for it or detect what it was i would and that's you know again part of the stress that's going to be out there from someone who's still under this program chooses to do something it's going to be stressful
0: yeah, I mean, this is really the gold standard program now, isn't it? I mean, in professional it is. sports.
1: Okay, so there's no other professional sport that has number one a truly independent authority administering it, and what that does is it shows you there's not going to be any business interest um, in you know carrying out the program. USADA doesn't give a shit if it's our number one earner if they test positive doesn't benefit positive. them yeah doesn't, they don't care all they care about is clean sport they don't care there's going to be no f- allegations of favoritism USADA doesn't care who the athlete is where where they live they're all about you know clean sport again 365 day a year well first off no other professional sports have that independent nature Olympic sports have that they have independent agencies but professional sports don't that's huge to begin with 365 days a year testing I mean you look at the other professional sports here, at least in the United States, they can't say that. Um, urine and blood tests um, at any point. Blood, by the way, we had a lot of concerns from athletes like, man, how much blood are you taking from me? That's going to be a, a deterrent. That could affect my performance if you take blood from me. It's less than a tablespoon of blood. Really? So very little amount. Science shows will have no effect whatsoever on your performance even later that day. Um. You know, the biological passport's huge, so even if you don't find a specific drug, you know, we can go over time and look at abnormal variances. Um, And so you throw all those things together, and, you know, in my experience of both dealing with sports here in the U.S. and worldwide, there's no other organization that that touches what this thing is. Now—
0: there's some sports that you could argue really they just can't exist without performance enhancing drugs. Bodybuilding of course comes to the front line. That's the the first one that everybody thinks about. If bodybuilding instituted something like this, the sport would change radically overnight. I mean, you would see people shrink to the point where they didn't they bear no resemblance to like Dorian Yates or Lee Haney or any of these guys that were in their prime that were just these freaks That looked they didn't even look like real people. Yep. I'd agree with that Uh, But what about pro football like those guys are fucking gigantic? How much of that is strength and conditioning programs? I mean, do you know how much of that is that they didn't have those strength and conditioning programs in the 60s and how much of it is steroids and growth hormone and
1: yeah, it's it's hard to say. I mean, they they do have they have, and I, I know and have worked with their people who are instituting their program. Their program is not admin ad, uh, is not independently administered. It's them. It's you know, in house, in house. So, say if they have
0: a star athlete that tests positive, they can kind of you whoosh, whoosh,
1: sweep don't that know that. I one? don't think that's happening because you looked at you know you looked at some of the athletes that have, and uh, you know I don't think that's happening. But you know that question would always you know, oppose itself because that it is the fox guarding the hen house there. And um, it's
0: not nearly as comprehensive.
1: It's not. And, you know, one thing that I found in anti-doping programs, you could have the most solid program all the way around. If you have one little weakness in it, the tiniest weakness could be a loophole that you can drive a tractor trailer through. I'll give you a perfect example. Say a program has everything that we have. Um, 365 day year testing. Say it's even you know USADA administering it, and say in the collection process during the season, the collector would call up somebody on the team or in the organization the night before and say, "Hey, I need a parking pass tomorrow um, to get in. I'm going to be showing up." That one little phone call, despite all the strength, comprehensive strength, could be could be the weakness that would cause you know everybody to run through that employee is friends with somebody, you know, the players on the team, knows who's hot or not, makes a call the night before, hey man, they're coming tomorrow. Don't show up tomorrow. Do the professional sports leagues, I don't think they do, have a three strikes whereabout policy where if they're not there for a certain day, then that can be used against them, or if they're not there for that day as a tester said, Oh I'll just get that person later. Hmm. Um, so little things like that can be manipulated to to again drive you know a truck through. For-
0: what did you think about the Vanderlei Silva situation for people not aware of it Vanderlei Silva? They showed up for a random drug test out of competition um, He wasn't scheduled for a fight and just bolted and when he bolted they gave him a lifetime suspension They said you're done your, your career is over You you avoided a drug test I um, What did you think about that?
1: So first, under our program, we have this whereabouts where you get basically three strikes in a rolling 12 months, and then there's a sanction. That's if, you know, they just can't locate you or you didn't do a good enough job or you didn't complete your whereabouts. If a tester comes to test one of our athletes, say, at a gym, says, hey, I'm here from USADA to test you, and that athlete says, screw you, and runs out the back door, that's a sanction right there, a penalty. And potentially under our system with aggravating circumstances could be four years. That may be an aggravating circumstance where this guy or girl said, screw you, I'm not doing this thing, and runs out the back door. So that's four years on the first time. His case, that he'd had one before? Had he had a positive before, or that no, was the first one?
0: it was his first one. Yeah. Well, he obviously didn't test positive even then because he didn't test at all. But then he admitted that he was, in his words, he was taking some sort of uh, it wasn't a steroid. I think it was a diuretic. He was saying because he had fluid buildup. Or something it didn't make any sense to me. Um, but like Aldo, he avoided taking a drug test in Brazil, correct?
1: Uh, I mean, I don't know if that's the case that he avoided it. I mean, there was, you know, Obviously, I think Nevada played. You know, publicly disclosed what was played out. They mm-hmm. sent a collector here from the United States down there. Um, showed up at the gym um they disputed whether or not they the should prob- take it yeah who knows what happened one thing you know i don't know exactly how everything went down there one thing i can say is under our program and that's one of the reasons we went to usada usada needs to go to another country to do a collection like that they reach out to the national authority of that country so that when somebody somebody shows up on behalf of usada or with usada at a gym you're not going to get an instance, or you know, a reasoning that hey, we didn't know who this person was. They'll be credentialed. Everyone will know who they are. There'll be a representative from that that nation there.
0: I think they tested Aldo's sample anyway, if I'm correct, and he tested negative. Is that true?
1: They did. Ultimately, I think it was the next day that he provided a sample, um, and that did test negative. But there was some issues about the day before sample wasn't provided um, because. Because he went 24 hours and he could have, whatever he had, could have cleaned out of his system. Sure. Some I mean, things that, can. that is, you know, that would be a concern, sure. What, uh, th-
0: so you they can test for human growth hormone now, too, which was something that they couldn't test for for a, a long time?
1: They couldn't, true. And there's also, you know, another test that came out for it um, where they can run back a couple weeks. It used to be with a blood test. You would have had to detect it within maybe 24 hours of its use. Um there's now an isoform test, which isn't necessarily for the drug itself, but kind of like with the biological passport, if you take growth hormone, it will affect certain markers in you that will last over time, even if the drug has cleared your system. So it gives anti doping that ability to reach back a couple of weeks and determine if it was used. So again, an evolving tool that, you know, maybe some organization says, Oh, it's new test two weeks. We can go back. All those frozen samples, let's go back and, and retest them and see that maybe it wasn't within twenty four hours that an athlete used but two weeks. So that factor I think is always, you know, hanging out there for somebody that chooses to do to use a substance as banned.
0: Well, Jeff, uh, thank you very much for coming on here and, and taking the time to explain all this stuff. And thank you very much for this incredibly comprehensive effort to clean up the sport. I think it's awesome, and I think what you're doing is just—it's very—it's very—it's very intriguing. It's inspiring, and I think ultimately, it's—it's it's great for the sport.
1: Appreciate it. Yeah. I Anything else to say? No, I think I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the platform and. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you at a, an event soon. Absolutely. My pleasure. Jeff Nowitzki, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back tomorrow with uh, Jeff Ross,
0: and uh, that's it. Enjoy your day. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. All right, we did it.